I think the best part from the original Avatar is the fact that they called the element that they found on unobtainium. unobtainium. Yeah. That was subtle. <laughs> My grandma wanted to watch E2 Mama Tambien with me. So. Oh, grandma. Yes. How does so, she feel about two dicks in one mouth? <laughs> Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we are going to be discussing the 1966 film Persona, directed by Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman. There is a scene in this movie that is directly out of The Neon Demon. Oh. Yeah, where uh, Stephen Baldwin fucks a corpse. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> if you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, FilmTankShow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there, everybody, and welcome into episode 77 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, and on today's episode, we are discussing the 1966 film Persona. Here with me, as pretty much always, Toussaint Egan and Nick Cheney. Hey, what's up? I'm whispering because we're talking about a Bergman movie today where everybody whispers. And cries. And cries. Oh, that's another cut because he made the movie Cries and Whispers. Oh, is that... <laughs> we have uh, two Bergman aficionados on this podcast. I was going to say, we have a longtime listener. Uh, her name is Sarah Bush, and she has joined us for the first time. So thank you very much for joining us for this episode, Sarah. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. That's good. Usually, that's that's a good start. You know, if yeah. we have someone for the first time and they said that they wish they weren't here, that would be kind of a downer. I mean, yeah. I say that before every episode. Mm-hmm. But, but that's because you're here every week. True. And I have alcohol to uh, numb my fears. <laughs> you have fears? Is that accurate? I don't want to talk about Not it. Not about the podcast, just like In general? Yeah, like life anxieties. Oh, I can see that. Malaise. I mean, you live in America, so you should have fears right now. <laughs> Make America happy again. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, uh, so this film uh, is definitely pretty uh, adorable. That's, one, that's not I, the word. I was not going to use that word. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's one of the funniest it's movies. Pretty I've much ever a Gary seen. Marshall <laughs> film. It's a romp. <laughs> it's a romp. <laughs> Jesus. It is uh, pretty intense and also. Um, kind of delves deep into uh, a certain different areas of uh, of film and, and just uh, storytelling in general. So a little bit later, we'll get into talking about this film. Uh, also, we're going to do a weekend review in just a little bit. But first, as per usual, when we have a new person joining us, I'm uh, going to ask Sarah a little bit about um, what kind of film slash TV she's into, uh, what are some of her favorite genres, and also some of her favorite film slash TV shows. So take it away. Well, um, I'd say, not surprisingly, that one of my favorite directors is Ingmar Bergman. Whoa, shocking. Yeah. Um, I was asked by Nick which movie I might want to discuss for this episode, and I thought that, you know, Maybe that would be a, 
for my own selfish reasons, I wanted to talk about one of my favorites, and it seemed really different from everything I'd heard on this show so far before. So, yeah, Ingmar Bergman's probably my favorite director of all time. Um, I also like a lot of other favorites in the sort of indie world, like Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson. We know those names. Yeah. Yeah. Heard of them. Uh, oh, crap. I thought maybe they were a little bit more obscure, but not, not with you guys. You're no slouches. Oh, God. Uh, that's right. Um, genres. I like, I like horror. I like a lot of horror from the 80s and 70s before jump scares took over. Uh, I love the James Bond franchise. Um, Gary Oldman's one of my favorite actors, so I'll give anything he's in a pass probably. You've seen Air Force One? Yeah. Isn't it amazing? His yeah, performance, at least. He's incredible in so everything. Shouty. He's the best part of every movie oh, he's in, but my favorite movie he's in, and one of my absolute favorites of all time, is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Oh. oh. I haven't seen that. It's a, it's a different one. It's based on a <laughs> play is. by Tom Stoppard. It's about two minor characters in Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a little weird. It's a little out there, um, but it's well worth a well worth a watch sometime. So, which character does he play, and who is the other actor then? Oh wow, that is the perfect question for that movie. <laughs> it's not totally clear who he plays. Oh, okay. <laughs> but the other actor is uh, Tim Roth. Tim Roth. Oh, okay. So they're the two yeah. title characters. Um, I believe. I think Gary Oldman is probably credited as Rosencrantz, but that's a big joke in the movie. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cause isn't it like? Cause you you made me watch it. <laughs> made you. <laughs> I, I was, Son of a bitch. You uh, encouraged me to watch it, yes. and I don't. I have to admit, I I was too intoxicated to truly uh, follow it. That happens. Mm-hmm. With but you? I do remember the running joke where, like, isn't every time they're addressed, somebody switches their names each time, right? Right. Yeah. And Gary Oldman plays the one who's a little bit slower on the uptake, and he doesn't know who he is, and it really frustrates right. Tim Roth's character. Hmm. I'm probably not doing it justice, but it's it's funner than it seems, I suppose, than just some uh, frustratingly ambiguous, like, who who are they? We don't even know who these people play. It's based on Hamlet, Shakespeare. It sounds kind of kind of lame, but it's it's so fun. I love it. Cool. So, yeah, that's a little bit about my movies. It's kind of kind of all over the map. Now, nice. you mentioned horror. Like, what's one of your favorite horror films? I'm just asking. Yeah. No, no. I, do, I, just, I don't get to talk no, to people about a lot of horror I, all the time. I, I, I got you on that, and, but I, I love Tucson's ears perked up. Horror? Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like a lot of people don't like horror either. Yeah. Certainly not the kinds that uh, get produced a lot today with the jump scares and the gore. I, I don't like gore unless mm-hmm. it's really super cheesy, like think Peter Jackson in the 80s. Yeah. I yeah. like that a lot. I love the original Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. Um, haven't seen the TV series, but I hear that that's good. It's really good. Yeah, okay. I would definitely recommend it. It's on my to-watch list for sure. Um, I like psychological horror like Rosemary's Baby or the, the Babadook. Yes, we love the Babadook. I listened to we your episode Speak on. for yourself. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was all right. <laughs> two of us did. Yeah. Yeah, so two of you are correct. Wow. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh. You guys all suck. Yeah. That's right. I just watched... Uh, Oh, what's it called? It's from the 80s. Zombies oh. Reanimator. Yeah. Okay. That's a fun one. Nice. Yeah. So yeah. those are some of my favorites. Cool. Awesome. So moving on, let's do a little week in review, although this will probably go for like an hour as per <laughs> usual. Uh, let's start with Nick. Oh, boy. One second here. Forgot. You are always so prepared for this. I know. Well, I forget to load up my letterbox because if I load it up too early, then the phone will just shut off and I have to get back into it anyway. So 
Let's. First world problems. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty much the definition of first world problems. <laughs> it's such an inconvenience that I have to like unlock my phone. I don't need that can connect to the attitude. internet. Um. Oh, you know what? I'm gonna bring up a film that me and Sarah watched. Uh. Well, last night. Um. It's now streaming on Netflix. I don't even remember. I'm not sure what you're gonna say. Oh, you will know as soon as. Uh. Oh boy. Um. It's called God's Club. And oh, yeah. <laughs> Sarah picked this out because she's a masochist. And this is starring Stephen Baldwin. Oh. Not like <laughs> so starring? You know like starring. Yep. Oh, okay. He is the... Top billing? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and it is one of those, uh, and I apologize if we have religious viewers. On this, you don't. Or shall we say listeners, not viewers. Um, we also don't. This is definitely one of those what you would think of it like a Hallmark Christian movie, like oh. where it is out to convert, so oh. to speak, Jeez. or at least preach to the choir. Is know? Sabrina the teenage witch in this somewhere? <laughs> God's you not know. dead. Uh, pretty much, kind of. Yeah. So this this centered around uh, uh, Stephen Baldwin's character uh, was he's married, and at one point, uh, so his wife is like. A real religious person, but was he? That's what I didn't understand. He was, is was he... just along for the ride, essentially. Okay. I think he loves her a lot. He will do whatever she does, but he is not invested. Right, in he's religion. a man of science, right? Yeah, he's a science teacher. Right. So um, his wife gets into a well, they both get into a car accident <gasps> one night, and as she's laying there dying, she asks him <laughs> to pray with her. And so she goes he, to God's club. Well, no, and and he couldn't he couldn't bring himself to do it. So she dies, obviously, because he didn't pray with her. And uh, the whole movie <laughs> is about in wow, in sorry. her in her uh, what an asshole in her memory and honor. <laughs> oh, uh, he takes over uh, the club that she wanted to start up, which mm-hmm. or already did start. I don't know. Some of these things were unclear. Called uh, God's Club, and it's it's there are things a, with religion that weren't clear. Yeah, a little bit. Oh, shit. And uh, this was and it, the the drama of the movie comes from the fact that this is a a religious club uh, that's in a that's an after school program in a public school. So of course the whole movie becomes the atheist's parents versus uh. Stephen Baldwin and his dead wife. And, <laughs> and, um, I will say in the end, God, uh, God triumphs. And As uh, he always does. that's right. Um, a kid is saved when he goes off his meds because he starts praying. <laughs> and, uh, um, it what was, a great message! It was. You don't I, need medication. There's no brain imbalance if you just trust the Lord. That's right. Yeah. And I saw signs like that when I was in North Carolina. I was like, man, Ooh. that's really fucked up. Oh lordy! Yes. And trust the preacher too. Yeah, he, knows, so, he knows best. <laughs> nope. I just I have to admit this was an amazing movie. Um, it it spoke to me in ways I've never been spoken to before. It touched me in places I never Whoa. thought I'd be touched. <laughs> <laughs> what Tucson? Why do you like to punch me? Um and yeah, just as all I can say after having seen it is I want to be a member of God's Club now. So um, we're gonna start one after the podcast, actually, and we invite listeners to join in. Well, yes. Yeah, wow. <laughs> they're gonna be able to join in. This is gonna. It's gonna. Well, it's it. a correspondence club. Yeah. They'll like email us their thoughts and prayers. Okay, See? we've I already think. thought of that. That would be excellent. Oh, There's these two kids in the movie who think they're gonna troll. Uh, Stephen Baldwin's character because they're like oh let's go to this God's Club and be assholes and then they go and it's not even like they don't even try to troll they literally sit down and then he says something and they're like 
Wait, what? What's a, a, like, a Jesus? Tell, tell us a story about <laughs> Davy and Goliath. That sounds dope. Like, <laughs> and then they're like, "Well, and oh, I love the conversation when he's like, oh, and um, you know, Jesus was resurrected, like zombies.'" Like, well, like you've dead? never heard this yeah. fucking story before? Are right. you serious? That was my reaction. Who the like, fuck these, are you kids? These kids are not even remotely acquainted with the basic tenets of Christianity. Like, oh, like and even, like, even if you're not raised in a religious household, like this, you can't, this, this, escape, so, you can't escape that story because it's just like it's codified right. in almost every other form of yeah. popular culture. Toussaint will love this because then those same two kids, the oh, next God. day, Stephen Baldwin really wanted to make an impression on them the next time he would encounter them at the next meeting. So he uh, the first day he had passed out Bibles, and to which one very sweet girl goes, "I've never had my own Bible before." And anyway, finally, she's never been to a motel. That's so. right. <laughs> <laughs> but the next day, so hard to come by. <laughs> the next day, Stephen Baldwin is going to be the cool guy, and he goes, "You know, after I gave you guys those Bibles, I realized there's probably another way to do this." No. And then all of a sudden, he pulls out what's basically the like graphic novel, fuck off, adaptation of the Bible, and one of the two kids goes. Ooh, a comic book, and then the other one goes. It's called a graphic novel, dude. Oh my god, no! And it Don't was it was glorious. And this is the Bible as written, yeah, and, and, in a graphic uh, novel as as written and animated by Frank Miller. Yeah. <laughs> oh my yeah, god! Well, I mean, you know, the spirit. He and is, then the yeah. white people came. Oh my god, <laughs> that was so. Yeah, I I highly recommend God's Club. Uh, mm. It was a very entertaining hundred minutes. You know exactly how many minutes it was. Now, was this like that really awful film that you watched on YouTube earlier this year where the... The girl like admitted that she had had sex to her father. No, because that's not a religious movie. That's well, a I know, PSA. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, no, I'm talking no. more about the quality of the actual acting. I would say and... slightly above that because okay. that was just like <laughs> a, pe- a I feel like I could see people holding the scripts like behind their backs or something. But um, <laughs> this certainly did not. This is this is not like I'll say as far as the spectrum of quality Christian films go, this was not as bad as like Kirk Cameron's bullshit but it's not on the compulsively watchable side of like what greg kinnear's been doing recently with like heaven is for real which i actually did see and i did not enjoy but i did not so it's more in like the it is more in like the god's not dead yes it is more like that but it's not as it's not as uh shall we say accusatory it's more just like we christians are cool with atheists we're okay we just whatever so it's not as annoying they're presented as very reasonable and the atheists are just super angry and combative and they they outnumber the christians in the movie for some reason oh man there is a scene in this movie that is basically directly out of the neon demon oh yeah where uh stephen baldwin fucks a corpse no (laughs) what No, where oh, I must uh, have fallen asleep. Yeah, no, but there's a scene when the atheist <laughs> so the parent. Corpse... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. It was his wife. What? <laughs> um, Jesus Christ, dude. <laughs> no, but there's a scene in which Stephen oh, Baldwin is uh, being confronted by one of the atheist parents, who's like, "Hey, get your Bible away from my kid!" And he's like, "Whoa, <laughs> get man. your Bible yeah. away from my child!" And he's like, "For all Whoa. the people who talk like that." Yeah. He's like, "Whoa, man! I was. She joined the club. It's not like it's a mandatory thing." And, wow. And, okay. and the guy's like, "Whatever, whatever." And so then uh, Corbin Burston is in this movie randomly, and so he's on uh, he's on the school board or something, and he's like talking to Stephen Baldwin's character, and he's like, "It's not worth it, man. You know, he's just trying to get you riled up." And then as Stephen Baldwin's walking away, the atheist parent goes, "Yeah, why don't you go back to your dead wife?" <laughs> and, wow. And that was like, "Oh." 
man, that's straight just out really of just. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Corbin Burton, now you mentioned it, mentioned him. Have you seen the amazing horror film The Dentist ever or not? Ooh, no, 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 no. Okay, I don't think so. That's, that's interesting. Yes, Corbin Burton. He's, is he he's like there. the star in that? Or? Yes. Okay. And is he, he a dentist? Is, he is the, he is the, the dentist. dentist. I remember uh, watching some of this many, many years ago on one of the movie channels, and it was mm. delightfully awful. So Ooh. something to maybe think about. I was going to say I'll have to mm. seek that out. Yeah. So anyway, I only really wanted to talk about God's Club because that was. I mean, I've seen a lot of other movies this and past. Technically, it was a 1996 film, The Dentist, really okay. quickly. It was about an extremely successful dentist. Ooh. Goes off the deep end after he catches his wife cheating on him. Um. And then becomes a serial killer. <laughs> That, that would be a great doubleheader with uh, The Ice Cream Man, another oh. 90s horror film about um, a profession, just a very particular trade where the person is also a serial killer, mm-hmm. and he's portrayed by, um, what's Ron Howard's brother's name? Oh. That guy. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. It's probably the, about the same year, too. The, the tagline of The Dentist is, it's been six months, it's time for your checkup, and it says what? it's from the creators of Reanimator, so, uh, and this, uh, is, this is the poster. I we, wow. I mean, oh, I mean, I check that out. Yeah, listeners, you should look up the poster for the dentist because it's actually pretty. It's, it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> oh. The whole premise of this kind of reminds me of that scene from Marathon Man. That's immediately yeah. the first thing I thought of. It's like, is it safe? Is it safe? And Dustin Hoffman just like screaming. Absolutely. So it's I will just... definitely check this out. You should. And actually, it was uh, later. It was ninety six, but oh. I think it was still in that time period trying to portray that kind of. And it's Corbin. That's great. Moving on to Dusan. Okay. Well, this past week, I watched a shit ton of anime films, and I'm not going to talk about all of them. I'm only going to talk about one of them, and that is Hayao Miyazaki's uh, 1992 film Porco Rosso, because that was actually one of the two Miyazaki films that I I had not seen yet. It's like I still have to watch uh, Luputa. Um, Castle in the Sky, which is actually the first like Studio Ghibli official film that they produced after after Nausicaa. Oh. Um, I loved Porco Rosso. It, yep. It's great. It's like it's about this um, former Italian airman who becomes like a mercenary that hunts down pirates in the Adriatic Sea. And at some point, it's not really explicated directly, but like he ends up being cursed like in in, in such a way um, because of a a, a past uh, dishonor that he had to go through is like he has the face of a pig now and it's 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 i can relate (laughs) no no it's it's really funny and it's really beautiful um one thing i've I've noticed because i've just been watching all of miyazaki's films through throughout like the past week is that the one constant throughout most of his work is that he has this infatuation with flight and with depictions of flight like even with oh his, I think he meant the Denzel Washington movie uh no like Hayao Miyazaki is he probably, should that's a fabulous film probably not a fan of that film I, I don't I don't think he would be um uh like that, that goes through all the way from a film like Nasca through Porco Rosso through even Spirited Away all the way to his final film uh, The Wind Rises which is literally about a World War Two um uh aeronautic engineer but i really enjoyed the the dub of porco rosso because uh the main character is voiced by michael keaton okay and i actually watched the the bonus features after the fact like behind the mic and this was around like the time of the tim burton batman film (laughs) and so with with uh listening to to michael keaton like him talking to like the actual camera (laughs) 
he's just wearing this penguin suit with the background of this mansion like after after batman he just would not stop dressing like fucking bruce wayne and i just lost my shit over that like everybody else was just dressed normally but he's like dressed to the nines for some reason for this this dvd uh commentary about porco rosa hey at the time like Michael that was the much else going on. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say he was like the man. Yeah. Um. I actually, that's a good uh, observation because I'm curious when you watch these Miyazaki movies, do you watch the dub for the most part, or I, do you? I do watch the dub, and yeah. I also try to watch it a second time uh, with the subs, just because okay. I. I I'm, I'm a sucker for the Ghibli dubs because Disney. They're always, all well done. Say, they always get. Yeah. It. Well, that that's actually a question I was going to ask you, Tucson, because yeah. I have seen. Both Spirited Away and Ponyo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have much more. I actually haven't seen Ponyo. That's the other one I have to see. I enjoyed that one quite a bit. Yeah. I actually am obviously in the minority that I like that more than Spirited Away. That's okay. But um, I'm, I'm interested to see the difference between how well the dubs work in something like Ponyo, which was clearly made with dubs in mind, mm-hmm. and 20, 15, whatever years later, something like what you're talking about that maybe – the, the dubbing was more of a, not necessarily an afterthought, but wasn't in mind as much as they were making the film. I, I think that for Miyazaki's films, at least, ever since they've been localized, like he has been one of the few directors that, dating all the way back to like the, the late 80s, like 90s uh, proliferation of anime, like to the West when they were actually like localizing it, mm-hmm. he's probably been one of the few directors whose body of work has pristinely held like high quality like localization dubs versus like everyone else where they're just like pretty much monotone into a mic okay. and just like screaming for some reason i hate that shit yeah, so, so, someone, so you're saying pr- pretty good yeah very I've, good i've yes. seen not many miyazaki movies but i've seen i think his first well maybe it's not his first but one of the first uh my neighbor Totoro. That's one of his his. It's not his definitely first, his first his, breakthrough to, yeah. to uh, the Western, uh, not the Western. It's to hard to our, pinpoint a breakthrough for him because well, like, I mean, as far as from, accolades go, and yeah. like this is the arrival. I think as far as people getting him in their cultural consciousness. Oh yeah. But that dub and that movie is from you know 1988 or something. Yeah. Uh, like I always watch it with the dubs, and I think that's the thing is I always watch anime with dubs even if it's a bad dub because of the fact that maybe i don't know but i'm I'm a simpleton but you know like when you dub a like a foreign language live action movie like it bothers the shit out of me yeah Yeah. because it looks like an old italian uh spaghetti western where they just shot everything and then they just went in the studio and be like okay doing the entire script through adr well old like 80s kung fu film where they're just like yeah, but with thing. anime, they truly and Miyazaki movies, they truly don't just translate, but they also conjugate and condense the script to make sure that at least the motions like pretty much line up. It with has what to fit saying, the movement, and it's pretty spectacular. Another thing too about dubbing in animation versus live action, which obviously there are a lot of differences, but. When you watch a live-action film, everything in the frame isn't necessarily there for a reason. Where if you're watching an animation, like everything they've done was right. there was deliberate. Yes, yes. Yeah. even yeah. even if it's something as simple as oh, just you know whatever. That's what the grass looks like, which obviously that just happens to be there. But still, I feel like. Uh, it would take away more to watch with subtitles in animation as opposed to live action. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, that was uh, probably the standout from this past week for me. I really enjoy Porco Rosso. It's probably like up there for like one of my favorite Miyazaki films now. So yeah, definitely recommend. All right. Sarah. Moving on to Sarah. So this is a little bit odd, but the the standout piece of entertainment that I watched in the last week is actually a bunch of videos on YouTube by <laughs> Yeah. 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 A fella who calls himself Froggy Fresh. Okay. Oh my god. I feel like he should have at least twenty seven million subscribers. Right now he's at half a million. Tell us about him. Well, his first and I think his most popular video is called uh, The Baddest of Them All. And it's basically this. What it is, is it's like comedy music. It's rap or hip hop. And Mm -hmm. he is this kid. It's hard to tell if he's a teenager or if he's a 20 something. Oh, he's like Andy Milikanakis. Kind of. He's He's this little guy. He's got a weird southern twang, although I believe these were made in Michigan. All mm. these videos. So the first one is just celebrating what a bad guy he is. And, um, like the Suicide Squad. We're the bad guys. Oh. Anyway. But, on. but when you delve deeper into his musical uh, canon, you find the blossoming of a storyteller, a rapper, a director, an actor, just all of these things. It's It sounds really strange, but I love um, like parody songs and things like that. I'm not even sure what you'd call this genre, but I thought is it, that... Is, is really quickly, is this something more like, like what like Lonely Island is doing, or is it different like than that? That, but I would say with... Um, is well, it like I'm Bill Burnham? For you, but... No, I'd, I'd say it's more like... Uh, yeah, what, who did you just say? Lonely okay. Island, yeah. Andy Samberg stuff it's like yeah, that it's, if it's half sort the of the ch- same vein of silliness but he uh, um so this guy he tells a, a bunch of stories about his neighborhood and the people in it and he's usually the hero of his own songs and there's villains and the thing that stands out about it for me <laughs> is that it's the most it really does get a lot more sophisticated as it goes along. I've seen, I probably watched about 10 of these videos the other day, and he's been making them for about three or four years. He's okay. actually fairly productive. He puts out maybe one every three or four months. And about how long are these? Three to five minutes. Okay. Oh. Um, and they're the most professional, amateur looking videos I've ever seen, which is to say that they're super well shot. Um, there's such a ne- neat attention to detail in the videos. Like, uh, there will be a song about the neighborhood bully stealing bikes. It's actually a trilogy about how Froggy <laughs> Fresh and uh, what is it? Money Man Mike? Money Maker Mike. Money Maker Mike. Thank you. Uh, his best friend. Is, how he, they... is he Big Dick Richie's cousin? <laughs> oh, God. Weirdly, oh, yeah, actually, weirdly enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's there's one about how there's a zombie in Froggy Fresh's basement. Uh it, it's clear that whoever is making these videos, whoever is responsible for them, and I guess the guy likes to keep his real per, uh, real identity a little bit of a mystery, mm-hmm. but I'm, I get the sense that the guy in front of the camera is um, writing all of this stuff and doing all the music, and it's, it's sort of a one-man show, and he's just recruiting kids in, in his neighborhood because this is very clearly shot in suburban Michigan in like their mom's house. Like, it's it's so funny, and, the, and this kid watches lots and lots of movies, lots of buddy cop dramas, lots of urban legend things, and it's, he, he clearly, I guess, knows his entertainment tropes, and 
it's so funny. I've never had so much fun watching just crap on YouTube. Before. So the the way you're describing it, specifically the last uh, item you you put out there, that it's somebody who's trying to not necessarily hide who he really is, but hasn't like announced that oh, I am this person. The first thing that's coming to mind when I'm thinking of this is something like Banksy. So is that is that something you think where this is going, or or not really anything like that? He's just making With- art for the sake of like. His own, he, he's creating his own persona separate from like his his real life lived persona. I think it's more along those lines. If I say that he's like Banksy at all, I think that gives um, a lot of prestige or like. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess it depends on who you ask about Banksy. That's true. Yeah. More, more true. one of those things where he's he's, he's not- trying a similar kind of thing where he's trying to separate like who he actually is as a person from what he's actually doing in the in, in media. I think it's more of a from what I can understand from the videos you showed me, it looked more like a professional separation and not like a, okay. to add to the mystique. Okay, because gotcha. a the main person who's in all the movies. Uh, in, in whatever he's always on screen, and mm-hmm. I don't think it would be hard to figure out who he is if you really okay. check. Right. Cool. Um, what, I do want to say really quick: when you were saying, "Is it kind of like the Lonely Island?" I, my answer to the brief videos that Sarah showed me earlier today would be: it is kind of like that. If the songwriting was subpar, like, <laughs> like clever in the sense that I never know what he's going to say next, but like the rhymes are, I would say inherently and purposefully just like the, they, they all need like a second pass and yet right. that, that's what it's, makes it entertaining yeah hmm. it, that's the thing it's like these are all ripped from the pages of some teenage boy's diary like the first song where he's bragging about how bad he is he's talking about how he's made out with every girl in the world he has 400 guns he has 400 everyone. houses <laughs> literally everyone everyone yeah it's, he has the best words actually that's <laughs> If that's, that's not far off. I was going to say, it's like Donald Trump writing Lonely Island songs, actually. <laughs> that's pretty much as far as grammatical but yet hilarious structure. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Only self-conscious. Yeah. yeah. Okay. More than Donald Trump, which yeah. isn't hmm. saying much. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Anything else? Or is that, that basically... Uh... No, the, the no. Meme. I just want to uh, use this platform to give this a somewhat obscure YouTuber a couple more, couple more views. I'm gonna check out Froggy Fresh now. Oh, good. And yeah. maybe one other person. Well, so that's two. So yeah. that's good. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> My work here is done. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, two things I wanted to mention really quickly. Uh, one is a, a film that I saw. Another was an event that happened. As uh, my wife and I were downtown last weekend celebrating our four-year anniversary. Aww. I know. Congratulations. <laughs> Why, thank you. And um, Are you going to talk about my anniversary gift to you, yes, too? Yes, in fact, I am. <laughs> uh, specifically, not just because of the, that incident, but because of a response of my friend uh, after I texted him about it with the same thing I sent to Nick. Um, and I, I will actually post the photo that my wife took of this, uh, of, of this encounter uh, on our Instagram page, it is quite interesting of how the whole thing ended up being framed out. So we were at a restaurant in Chicago called Hugo's Crab House, and uh, we were just sitting there having a having a late dinner on Saturday night uh, last week, celebrating again our anniversary. And my wife just like leans in close to me and asks, "Hey, the person who's sitting behind you looks somewhat familiar. Would you?" Like, do you, would you maybe know who that is? And I said, I will have to look, but I don't know. So the usual, like, quick turnaround, glance, whatever. Immediately, I knew right off the bat, without a doubt, it was definitely John Cusack. So... Oh. 
<laughs> so since he was sitting right behind me in the booth behind me, and you could clearly see him, my wife snapped this amazing picture where I'm holding up my glass of uh, Woodford and uh, smiling to the camera. Woodford, by the way, uh, the whiskey of choice in the movie Mississippi Grind. Oh. Uh, Nick may remember from last year with yeah. his buddy Ben Mendelsohn and Ryan Reynolds. My lover. <laughs> so uh, it's, a, it's a cool little photo, and it's it, like... Uh, actually, in the picture, I looked at it. Like John Cusack is like half smiling, looking. At it, so it's really weird. So I will, I will put that on the Instagram page so everyone who hears this can see it. But did he say anything? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> oh, I get it. Oh, yep. You're so you're so so witty. It's a freebie for you. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, <laughs> so uh, I texted this as well to my friend Jason, uh, who first responded by saying, "I'm drunk." Uh, and he spelled drunk incorrectly, so it was a really, <laughs> a really drunk. drunk. So it was, it was a really authentic. bad start. So then I said, "Yeah, it's it's him." You know, I I looked twice and confirmed it's definitely him, no doubt. I so, asked him. <laughs> Instead of saying something like, well, that's crazy or whatever, he, he responds by saying this, and he didn't spell any of this wrong, but this is exactly what he said word for word to me. He said, you should go, go over and throw your drink on him for being in that terrible shit-ass Chirac movie. <laughs> wow. wow. So I mean, he was in High Fidelity, man. That's like one of my favorite films. Like, I just like that that's the thing that my friend thinks of now is Chirac. That makes when, me really yeah. sad. John Cusack has been in many other... I didn't even know John Cusack was in Chirac. <laughs> because you didn't watch Chirac. I didn't watch it, but I mean, I, I remember seeing that cast. But and... he's been in, also been in things that have been good, like right. Love and Mercy last year was pretty good. Being yeah. um, John Malkovich. Well, that's yep. not really recent, but yeah. But that's a good movie. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, again, I said recent. <laughs> okay, so. sorry. <laughs> so yes, just an interesting little side note story is uh, not many brushes with... Film personalities in, in in my lifetime, so that was a interesting little little uh, tidbit there. Uh, the film I want to talk about actually uh, is a film I went to go see last night, uh, and I was pretty much determined to see this film uh, from day one this year, uh, and it just came out yesterday. And it was a film that probably will not be in the theater for very long, and that is the uh, the amazing remake of Ben Hur, which I went to go see last night. <laughs> So I went to go see it, and for the most part, I got exactly what I wanted out of it. So that's great. What was that? A uh, job? Oh, <laughs> damn. What, what did you want to get out of a Ben-Hur remake? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's nothing to get out of it. Nothing. Well, first of all, Morgan Freeman. Who gives a, a shit? Oh, what, what did Morgan Freeman play this time? Did he play, like, the wise, magical black man with the dreads? Yes! Yeah. Yes! Like, oh, that's it. Wow, I've never seen him play that character before. You are correct, sir. But did, did he say to Ben-Hur, like, get busy living or get busy dying in the arena? It's pretty much exactly how it went. So. He's got nice hands. <laughs> so, anyways, what I, what I wanted out of this film was some cool, fake-looking shots of, of, obviously, this... 2,000 years ago time period, got some of that, um, got bad interaction between I actors. I just envision you actually sitting there with a checklist. Okay. <laughs> Fake-looking arena shots? Yes. 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 What, so what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you, Tom Hardy's bait? Yeah. yeah. Let the games begin. So... Sounds like Doug Benson. Sounds like Bane. <laughs> That's what he says. I know because yeah, I just uh, saw that thing earlier this this week. So I just so what else did you get? Out so, anyways, of? um, oh boy, 
Okay. Nothing. Thank you. The real reason I wanted to see this film was not necessarily because it was a Ben-Hur remake, but because uh, one of my favorite characters from the show Boardwalk Empire was played by an actor named Jack Houston, and he has not been in that many roles. He Mm -hmm. uh, was in the film American Hustle, and he's had a couple other small little appearances. But he was the starring character in this film, so I decided to take it upon myself. He was Ben. Sure. <laughs> Decided to take it upon myself to, to see him. And honestly, uh, for what I was expecting for him as an actor, I was pleasantly surprised that he wasn't absolutely awful. So that was good. Um, and I have to say, I just, it wasn't like a great movie, but I at least enjoyed watching it. I thought the CGI, although not great in parts, was not as awful as I was expecting. So this is one of those movies that, even though it certainly wasn't necessarily good i had such low expectations for it that because certain aspects of it seemed to be somewhat competent i was like oh that was actually pretty good so and you know there there have been a lot of other films that i've went into this year and just been flat out disappointed by in this i just you know two hours went by and i was like that wasn't that bad so i'm in the minority most people thought this was a raging pile of dog shit and they are pretty much right to but- be honest when i checked letterbox this never happens uh but when i checked ben hur's page today i only had two uh two mutual like friends mm-hmm. uh or people that i follow that that had seen it you and a critic i follow but like that was the, I've never seen a number that low, so really, I just I don't know anybody who actually saw. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And all the reviews I read, none of them are from anyone of note. Um, no one's seen this. It's going to be out of the theater very quickly. Who thought this was a good idea? I I only just heard about this about a week ago, and was just stunned <laughs> that it even. Ex- I live under a rock, to be fair. Oh, okay. <laughs> But oh, I was just very curious well, as to why it was even made in the first place, so the, and the, was like, "Oh, I can't wait for next year's Lawrence of Arabia." Was like <laughs> no, don't slide. say that. Don't put that out there. It's too late. Jinxed. Yep. The the big thing is that my feeling was, if we're going to remake this, the chariot scene better be like the most amazing CGI I've ever seen in my life. And in fact, it was not. Um, <laughs> in fact, it was. Not. But at the same time, though, I thought it was going to be. Honestly, just terrible. And although it was still obviously nothing near living up to the original, um, I did think it was that bad in terms of like I, I mean, was I would mentioned. hope not as twenty sixteen as well, far as and in terms of having some uh, parts of it as as we see the kind of under the carriage view and, and you actually are seeing you know clearly they used real horses pulling chariots for certain aspects of, of the filming of it. So at least. It wasn't completely CGI destroyed like other films that have done things where like everything up to the live animals are all CGI all the time. Yep. Like that amazing scene in Jurassic World when clearly, um, what's his name, Star-Lord is, is holding on to the CGI dino and it's like, fuck this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's most people will probably hate it, but... Me, personally, I got everything I possibly could have wanted out of it. And I, you know, whatever. It was fine. I'll tell you what movie was better than. It was better than that Ridley Scott uh, Moses movie, for sure. That, I mean, that's not a hard, That's not a lot. No. It doesn't have to do much. But for a film but that... But it did have Ben Mendelsohn. For like three minutes. That's all I need. <laughs> also, too, um, I don't know how involved this is in every other Ben-Hur uh, sort of... 
I guess, media presentation because there hasn't been, there's been more than just the one film. Like it's been like a mini series. And yeah, the, I mean, the, the story, the story. Of that whole whatever has been adapted many times. Sure. So it's not necessarily that the original film, at least what we call the original film, is, you know, definitive. Right. Or... But it's like the de facto. Well, so. and it has the obvious one major scene that is pretty much referenced every time you talk about live action. Uh, special effects. I mean, and that's the that's the big thing as far as I think what stuns uh, I would say pretty much all of us at this table as to why it got made in the first place is that these days nobody like the mainstream audience is, is not interested in watching the original Ben Hur or watching I would say a movie that's I would say like Ben Hur. So the only reason why people remake old classics these days is because we have the technology to redo things that maybe didn't look great. Like when they did, uh, and I love the original, uh, but like when they remade RoboCop, I could see them thinking, oh, well, now we got CGI, we can really go all out with this, and we can but, comment on police state brutality or whatever. But like, they didn't, though. What, 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 no, they uh, didn't, but, but I could see that. But to your point, like... Like, there's really no reason to at all remake it because the original did what it was trying to do. Right, like, what right. if, like, today they, like, remade and Tucson is going to think this is blasphemous and he's right. Like, if there was, like, a The Thing remake for, like, 2018 or whatever. Well, I that mean, would, like, I mean, to be fair, like, let's... The Thing itself is a adaptation of an adaptation of a short story. Okay, but you but I... love that version of it. They already sort of remade the yeah, thing they, with they, the they prequel and it was shit so Great. but at least with the, the the thing is another example of like that movie only works and stands the test of time because those effects rival ev- like every other movie in its pure uh, class so that's another example of like yes like why would you remake it because we as a mainstream culture do not want to add nuance to these projects and our CGI does not look better than what they It doesn't and also back. same problem today name recognition like oh people are going to see this and be interested and that's obviously not the case it's all about so. the brand man it's all yeah. about the brand. Well, I think we'll see by the box office numbers that not a lot of people are going to be flooding to the theater. To ben Hur is not really even a brand, though. It's a prestige name of a of a, of a film that, like, I I would venture to guess that not a lot of people like who are goes today have have seen it. Yeah, yeah. Sure, it's like who was it. asking for that? That's, you know what? Well, it would yeah. be a good idea. A, lot of... a Ben Hur <laughs> remake. Who the fuck are you? Who let you in? But that's yeah. the thing is that's probably why it got made because they're like it's not a remake we're just making Ben Hur like no one cares. <laughs> but it's, it, for its time, it's a classic film from that time, and obviously people were marvelled by it. Actually, sure. probably the best um, the best comparison to Ben Hur would be James Cameron's Titanic in terms of its time. It's probably not the best film, but people were so blown away by it at the time that it won pretty much every award at the Academy Awards that year. People were like, oh my god, did you fucking see that chariot scene? Holy fuck. I can't wait till we remake Titanic. Well, I mean, Titanic itself <laughs> was technically a remake. In fact, I know. There's, I, that's... There's, there's a film that Nick claims, and I've never seen it, so I don't have a dog in the fight, but he claims is a woof, much woof. better yeah, film uh, which is called a night, night to Mar- <laughs> a night to remember, right? Uh, that is correct. Yeah, okay. no, it is not even just like obviously both are based on the same historical event. It's like James Cameron watched a night to remember and was like to his. I could do that. Secretary was like, oh, oh my god, they're uh, they're playing the violin on that. Write that down, okay? That's good. Um, oh, oh, I like. Okay, write that down. Well, too. that did technically happen. No, I know. And that's the thing. It's, it's not so much that it all happened. It's just. 
there's a great YouTube video where they put the two movies uh, side by I side. See. I gotcha. And it's not even that like James Cameron clearly ripped off the shots, but it's like, oh, like this is beat by beat the exact same story because you can tell different stories. Uh, the the only thing James Cameron did, which is arguably my least favorite part of his movie, is added the romance. Makes him seem kind of like a hack. Yeah. What, James Cameron? I, yeah. Yeah, the I, I, guy who's making four consecutive films at the same time about blue, like, horse people who no have one, sex with their no tails. No one gives a shit about whoa, it. Yeah. Whoa, that's, that's specious. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm not... I don't even know how to... I, I thought mean, you were better than that, Tucson. I, what? Think, what? I, think, I think the best part from the original Avatar is the fact uh, that they Credits. called... Oh. <laughs> that they that they called the element that they found on unobtainium. unobtainium. Yeah. That was subtle. <laughs> Never forget it. We can't obtain it. <laughs> All right, so uh, fun Wee. week in review. Everyone brought uh, definitely some interesting. Good job, guys. I know we, we did great. Well, that awesome was actually job. pretty quick. Yeah, for us. Yeah, usually yeah. it's 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 not. But but this yes. So the movie we're talking about today is. Ingmar Bergman's persona. Nice. Uh, Ingmar Bergman, a Swedish uh, filmmaker, and as uh, as Sarah mentioned, one of her favorites. And since you picked this film out and you, you wanted us to talk about it <laughs> while you were on the episode, um, why don't you give us a little more glimpse into why you like this film so much and also just Ingmar Bergman in general and his uh, filmmaking style. Sure. Well, uh, a little bit of context. When I was given this choice, I knew it was either between Bergman or James Bond. Which is like the same, pretty much. (laughs) Sure, yeah. Um, Because I knew that would be a first-time thing. No, it wouldn't. You guys talked about Spectre? We We did, did. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so didn't want to... Didn't want to retread there just yet. I wanted something really different. And yeah, so Persona is my by far my favorite Bergman movie. But that's saying a lot because there's not a movie of his that I've seen. And I think I've seen about 20. Um, there's not one that I dislike. It's basically from good to great so far that I've seen. And this one, it exemplifies everything that I like about movies, my favorite movies and in his movies. When I watch movies, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that I like them. They're fun. They're escapist for all the same reasons that people like to watch movies. But I also like ones that kind of get at really tough, intimate, personal problems that we have. And I think that there's no director who really kind of gets at nagging existential questions like Ingmar Bergman does. So this movie is like ground zero for self-doubt and madness and it's so beautifully shot and well acted um sven 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 nyquist that's right he was the man i think he's dead now i mean most of the personnel are dead (laughs) uh real question uh, really quickly now nick had mentioned last week when myself him and tucson watched this film uh, that this was a departure from Igmar Bergman's earlier works. Is that accurate? And was this, I would say, like a different tone almost than his earlier works? I I would say so, because I think most of his earlier work tends to be um, historically based. This was contemporary for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was usually a larger cast of characters. This is a very small cast. I believe there are maybe five or so people who appear on screen. And there are five or fewer characters we don't really know oh spoiler yeah. <laughs> so um yeah the the setting 
uh, both temporal and geographic, I think, is a little bit different from what we're used to seeing from him. Um, it's probably a lot more avant-garde with that opening sequence and then the, the big departure in the middle of the movie when um, the tension really breaks between the two, the, the two leads. So, yeah, I think it's a standout in a career that's just full of great movies. I've seen it probably four times now and just gets it's it's strange because it's a kind of ambiguous movie in a lot of ways and maybe cerebral, but it's actually it kind of makes a little bit more sense to me every time I see it. And yet there's always like all good movies. There's some little new thing that I pick out each time, some nuance, and I recommend it for everybody, especially I think Ingmar Bergman has this reputation as being sort of an inaccessible director or pretentious, and it's it's black and white, it's foreign, but the kinds of questions that he is addressing in his movies are universal, and I just love it. So I hmm. wanted to talk about it today. Awesome. The kind of people who are going to characterize a film in black and white and it's foreign as pretentious are losing out on a huge chunk of film. We, we just talked about Rashomon. I was just like, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I, I mean, I hate that line of thinking too, but you know, it's you got to hold these people's hands and right. <laughs> them wade yeah. into the waters a little bit. Yeah. Speaking of pretentious filmmakers, um, I saw Terrence Malick's Voyage of Time trailer today, and that looks phenomenal. So looks I just good. wanted to say I cannot wait to go see it. Hopefully, and it was uh, Kate Blanchett instead of Brad Pitt. They, yeah, which they were doing the other version, which sounds fine to me. Yeah, um, but yeah, that pretty much is exactly what I've always wanted to see out of a Terrence. Malick. Alec film was it Tilda Swinton who was doing the uh, narration for that trailer? No, Kate Blanchett. Oh, okay. yeah, and the other version is Brad, Brad Pitt. Pitt. Brad Pitt will be doing the forty-five minute IMAX version, and Kate Blanchett is doing the thirty-five millimeter uh, uh, film version, um, which is supposed to be like a feature, like hundred minutes or so. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, especially after viewing Night of Cups with you guys a few weeks ago and being like, "God damn it, this fucking guy is great." How Stop many movies it. is he up to? Because he's I've seen a bunch of his movies, Seven. but I know there was a huge gap. Wait, yeah. let's count him out. And he can do it. He is not referring to anything for the listener. Go, uh, go. Badlands, The New World, The Thin Red Line. Okay, this is not chronological. Well, no, it's not. It's just whatever's coming to my head. Now I have to start over. Tree of Badlands. Life. <laughs> Tree of Life. Badlands. To, to, to the Wonder. Badlands. This is going fuck. This is going great. Song. Three people counting at the same time. <laughs> Badlands, To the Wonder, The Tree of Life, The Thin Red Line, Days of Heaven, Night of Cups, and um, The New World. So, yeah, seven, and not including anything he hasn't already released. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. Well. Dope. Something to look forward to in October. Oh, yeah. Talking about Persona, uh, if you don't know anything about it, you're probably going to be very confused by this review that we're all doing. But, in fact, this film is about a nurse who is put in charge of an actress who cannot talk and finds that the actress's persona is <laughs> melding with hers. <laughs> oh, boy. So, uh, Nick, why don't you tell us a little more about this film, the actors who star in it, and also your your opening feelings on it, as I'm not going to do it justice. So. <laughs> yeah, I was very happy when uh, Sarah uh, chose this movie, because this is one of my favorite films of all time, and Bergman is one of my all-time favorite directors as well. Um, this movie, I, I, I agree with you, Sarah, when you say that every time you see it, it kind of makes a little more sense. And I, and I for at least from my perspective, I don't even think it necessarily, like, because it becomes so obvious every time, but like 
whatever your interpretation of it, just continually, I think, just more and more grounded in all the little details you can notice. Because I still think it can certainly be up in the air, whereas if somebody sees it this way, that I'm going to have a completely different perspective on it. But it's not like something like, I would say, like Mulholland Drive, where every time I watch that movie, I don't understand it more. I get more and more like perplexed by it, but in a deeply satisfying way. I just think that that's perfect dream logic. Whereas this is like a wonderful movie in which cinema is malleable and that's what i think bergman is certainly doing i mean the first shot of this movie is quite literally the film being projected uh and of course that opening sequence in which we're bombarded with images that can mean whatever we want them to mean or mean nothing at all uh even putting aside whatever the images in those opening title sequences mean in the context of this movie uh that's actually the opening title sequence also connects to his other movies like uh the spider is I would say a pretty not so subtle reference to the movie Through a Glass Darkly, in which, yeah, one of the uh, characters has a dream in which uh, I believe it has to do with kind of a sexual awakening or something. I, I don't. Well, she's praying to God for help. It's this woman whose schizophrenia is slowly becoming worse, and she dreams that, or she's asking God for help, but he just appears as a spider. Okay, yes. And um, I'm trying to think, but there's even uh, even the the little boy who is technically credited to be Elizabeth Vogler's uh, son, he's also technically the same boy that was in another Bergman movie. So it's mm. almost like this greatest hits of... Uh, yeah, of, callbacks. Yeah. Of, of stuff very that, rewarding for the Bergman aficionado. It is, <laughs> let me tell you. So, yeah, I, I absolutely love this movie. I My personal, as far as what I get out of it, is um, I feel like whether they're the same person is certainly an interesting question, but also becomes... I don't know, at least it fades in my mind as to whether I, like, I truly try to figure that out when I watch it. Because what I love about it is, like, I feel like it doesn't matter whether I think that the person is ultimately Alma or Elizabeth. Because, for me, it becomes a perfect encapsulation of, like, your internal versus external self. Because when, uh, when uh, you know... <laughs> When you, especially with somebody like Bergman, who is always dealing with existential crises and people who kind of, a lot of the time at least, uh, have gone numb inside or have started to repress their feelings, like this is like the most outwardly uh, depiction of that kind of said crisis with a much more avant-garde feel. So when um, like Alma is trying to get Elizabeth to like talk and talk about her problems and whatnot, but all she can do is continue to talk over it, like that's just a wonderful, I think, depiction of what it's like to kind of live with some kind of mental illness and neuroses where you're not quite aware of what you're um i don't know filling the void with and not realizing the damage you can cause to your own self Mm. by um mistaking silence for like peacefulness or you know like there's just so much to read into it that i I absolutely love it uh on a filmmaking level i think it's brilliant i mean sven nyquist uh cinematography is gorgeous like i would say like there are a million shots in this movie that i absolutely love um, it's even putting aside the ambiguity of what's happening. I think it's a tense movie. Like even if you watch it completely straightforwardly, and you think this is about two separate people, which I think is actually valid, um, and that um, one is not talking and the other is talking too much and whatnot. Like I mean, the scenes in which uh, Alma drops the glass and leaves the glass on the uh, on the ground to to just try to get um, Elizabeth to speak, and like those little scenes are. 
have so much tension in them, and yet there's like barely anything really happening on screen. It's actually, uh, and this is a film that gets brought up way too many times, probably on this podcast, but in terms of, of that, where you can read into different sort of narrative devices, um, I feel like sometimes you can compare this a little bit to a film like The Shining, yep. in terms of what is actually happening and what you believe, and that there are right and wrong, or there are not right or wrong answers. That, yeah. Context and subtext, and especially sure. in the way that, like, like The Shining, like what's happening on screen is just as viscerally terrifying as it is, like, subliminally terrifying. Like, mm-hmm. if you're not trying to figure out what's happening, it's still just as scary to watch it and not and not know what the true characters on the screen are doing. And then it can become even scarier if you try to think about what that can mean for, like, mental health issues and, like, what one person might be dealing with and how that's manifesting across the two of them and whatnot. Sure. So, for sure. Um yeah, the only thing I'll mention before I pass it on is that um, the 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 little shift uh, halfway through this movie uh, in which what what is happening right before is that when they're having the argument about whether she's she because yeah she does the is it before or after she does the boiling water boiling water when the uh, the film actually burns up the film I think reel. it's yeah I believe it's right after that right and then... so when that tension breaks both in the narrative but I love that Birdman can't help himself but also break it in the actual film that we're watching and burns up his own reel and then cuts to the next scene in which was completely out of focus but we can tell that uh, Elizabeth possibly is uh, <laughs> walking through whatever and then that stark uh, cut sound cut in back into focus is I love like you can read so much into that moment as far as like did things just shift? Like, did is one half of the movie, you know, one way, much like Mulholland Drive, is like, this a dream and that's reality? Or is this where Elizabeth, like, let's say Liv Allman's character is n- not Elizabeth, but she's actually Alma or, and vice versa? Or you could actually just read that as Bergman simply showing his hand as a filmmaker and just commenting on the manipulation of uh, how to construct a narrative and, and, and just what that just does to the viewer. Because I think at the end of the day, that this plot, for me at least, is actually pretty straightforward, and all the avant-gardeness is more a comment on the on Bergman's, I would say, deconstructing the idea of a fourth wall and our view of empathy for these characters. And uh, yeah, so I, I'll be curious to hear what you guys have to think about it too. So uh, yeah, I'll pass it on. Jusan, uh, you like it? Yeah, um, I had never. Um, heard of this film before before like you suggesting that we do an episode on it it's like i've heard of igmar bergman by reputation of the seventh seal which is a film that i still need to see i also really quickly when you're, when you're mentioning that you hadn't heard of this uh this was something that i was not surprised about well i guess i was actually surprised about but at the same time i was like oh that does make sense but i you know a little bit surprised by it i guess <clears throat> it said that the uh, imdb community which is think about what you will that this film is actually in the top 250 on the imdb list at number 192 which i was when i saw that i was like oh wow that after all the batmans (laughs) after all the batman actually all the the christopher nolan yeah yeah, films it's like oh interstellar number seven all time but managed to fit a real film in there (laughs) but it, it still i think has something to say about this film actually just having a lot of appeal among not necessarily the IMDb community, but just in general, because yeah. when you see films like this that appear in there, 
I think it says more about this film than it does about the community. It's hard not that's to react. Actually, to right, that's a pretty good point about its appeal. Like even even that demographic can't ignore it, or else everybody else who feels so strongly about this movie is giving it their votes. <laughs> uh, either way you read it, yeah, you can't really escape this movie. Yeah. yeah. So Tucson, please go ahead. Continue. Yeah, I I really enjoyed this film. Like I've watched it twice now, um, and one of the main takeaways that I really take away from it is like it's almost a puzzle box of, of a story of trying to pretty much like attach like what the hell is actually going on. It was like the, the whole question of whether sister Alma or uh, Miss Volgner are the same person or whether they're aspects or reflections of one another. It's like, it, it just, it, it just twists my mind how she's supposed to be there to help Miss Volgner, but it seems like she's the one who's coming out like apart at the seams. And so I want to believe that they're sort of like, they're, they're either, uh, aspects of one another in a metaphorical sense or they're literally the same person that might be going through some type of and this is just a theory of mine is like they're going through some type of experimental psychotherapy like um like process where you're trying to just like reconcile your own like dissonance with one another because one of the things that i i noticed upon re-watching it and i kind of made note of is that um Sister Alma, when she first appears on on screen when she's walking through the door she's talking to the to the doctor um we never see the doctor and her on in the same scene in the same shot in the same yeah, shot right. it's like and then when you actually see like the doctor for the first time from uh the reverse shot of of Alma's back like you don't see her face she never says anything when she asks questions or anything like that mm-hmm. like and then when she's walking back to to Miss Volgner's uh room at the beginning and then like she's talking to somebody else off off screen who is presumably the doctor and I'm just like why why did Bergman make that choice to not show this person actually talking to them? It was like, how are we seeing? I, I, I feel like this is a film where what we are not seeing is just as important, if not more important than what we are actually seeing off screen. It's like, especially with the um, one, one of the first things with, with Miss Volkner when she's uh, lying in bed. And I love this, like the use of lighting to actually like convey um, the, the transition of time and, and, of, of, of the day and the temporality of that, I was like, I thought that was just very subtle because, like, I can, I can, I can just honestly believe that that this person would just like that they were able to compress time in such a way that I could believe that Volgner was just staring blankly off screen at whatever the hell she was looking at, and just with the subtle um, like modulation of light that that it just shifted from like day to night i thought that was really cool and also the 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 framing context obviously with the intro and the outro um my first impression when i when i saw that was like oh it's like oh now i know where tyler durden like got the idea to splice a penis in the middle of that film from okay that makes sense ah neat he likes bergman um but also like at the end where it just like zooms out and you see the camera crew and then it goes back to the boy like messing with the telescreen or wherever the hell it is I my immediate thought was like, oh my god, did Ingmar Bergman make a Twilight Zone film where it's just like a speculative episode, like do 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 do. Um, I, 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 it I, is I, interesting that sorry, but uh, yeah, go ahead. But that boy, as far as we all, for the most part, and like I would say, the most iconic image of the boy is that he exists in this frame and yeah. almost like a four by three frame, which of course the movie itself is shot in the uh, Academy aspect ratio of four by three. Of course, and, <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. That. I feel like you're mocking me for all our for all, all the cinephiles out there. That's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> but when we see, um, and I love the idea that he exists in this. 
uh, this frame, and when he is putting his and, uh, hand up on the screen, mm. and it's the screen itself is kind of out of focus, but we can tell at the audience that we're seeing an image of either B.B. Anderson or Liv Ullman, the two actresses that are in the movie. Uh, and yet, um, I like the idea that it's like, I, I, I hate to use this, but I'm going to anyway because it is kind of overused, but whatever. That he is kind of like the Schrodinger's boy of these two women as to if, like who does he belong to? Is he truly... Um, uh, Elizabeth Vogler's kid, or is he the uh, aborted child, uh, you know, of Alma? Mm. And like, even Rick, though I, he's in a morgue, that's the he, other thing we haven't mentioned oh. yet. Yes, yes, and that's the other thing is he's in a morgue when we're the other when we're also introduced to him. But yeah, but the idea that he's in this kind of box-like uh, structure and he's only outside connection is this flickering uh, relationship between the two faces and the uh, shall we say the indecisiveness of which image he would be uh, particularly attracted to. I just think it's such a striking image that says a lot about his, I don't know, the way he's stuck in between the two of them, and both narratively and thematically, and and I think that that's certainly, by the end of the film, I don't know that anybody can truly say, uh, like, like, oh, it's so objectively true or whatever, but I just like the way that that's represented, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't really have that much else to say about it. I was like, I just... It, it, it's a puzzle box of a of a film that I like to, to just parse through. Is like I'm I'm curious about like the the contextualization of it taking place. There's 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 a scene uh, with Volgner where she's like looking at a television set, and you can obviously see that it's like Viet Cong. It's like it's happening in the 1960s. Is like you see like Buddhist monks or the titular Buddhist monk like self immolating themselves. Uh, just like what does that have to do with this? film and what's going on and is like do you guys have any theories about that do you have any knowledge about that sort of I'd, I'd read a little bit about that and what i like we were talking about before how this is a departure from bergman's other movies which are either historical or um, have a much larger scope of characters this one it takes place in the 60s that's she's watching the nightly news um there's another scene later if you remember where uh, Elizabeth is looking at a photo of a little boy being pulled from a ghetto in Warsaw, and I think in the when she's watching the monk, um, she's just retreating into the corner in horror, and she she can hardly contain herself. She's just reacting with horror, yeah. and those are some of the only. Um, the only times I remember in Bergman movies you see that kind of interference from the outside world. There are other movies where there are more. I, I would almost say plotty things happening. Like there are other movies that are set during wartime, but they're not real world yeah, events. Like the so, silence, there, there's a war happening, and it's almost like a like a Marx Brother war where it like it sounds like a made up country, and mm-hmm, made up language. Yeah. It's all these things. Uzbeki, Becky, Becky stand. <laughs> <laughs> and shame is sort of the same way, which was only two years later and filmed on the same island actually, where Bergman made a lot of his movies. Um, I think it's interesting because the rest of the movie is sort of. It's a lot more peaceful, and and the all the conflict is internal. It seems like the characters are retreating from the horrors of the outside world. So yeah. maybe it's just some comment on how uh, I don't know. We can't even deal with um, just what was happening in the '60s, I guess. But we couldn't deal with what was happening in the '70s. <laughs> they can't right. They can't. They can barely deal with what's happening inside the contents of their own brains. So that's. It's just really neat to see that one, those couple of glimpses in this movie. But yeah, I don't have any specific answers, and that's 
That's what I like about this whole movie, as we've hit upon a lot. There's, I hate to say, like, oh, there's no right or wrong answer. Every interpretation is equally valid. Oh, and I know we're like not we're not saying out. that here, but I have my own preferred interpretation sure. of it, which is that, or I think it's most important to kind of try and understand the spirit of it, or um, rather than what is literally happening, because I don't think that there's a right answer there. I think it is purposely ambiguous. It's almost playful at times, mm-hmm. which is funny because this isn't really that playful of a movie or lighthearted. It's about heavy, heavy stuff. But I think that basically I think Bergman kind of likes to fuck with us a little bit with all of these um, waffling back and forth between like, is this the same person? And But I think there's, when I watch it, I, I've just this morning was starting to think more and more like, I, I see more and more evidence that this is just one person and she's, noticing these different aspects of herself and she's she's discovering it and kind of dealing with it and then just as quickly repressing that side of herself again Mm. that was maybe my biggest takeaway today because of like some of the little details i would notice having to do with like wardrobe changes and the framing of characters like you guys have both mentioned you don't see the doctor in the same shot with B.B. Anderson. Um, you don't see Liv Ullman at the end of the movie. You just see B.B. Anderson departing the island, dressed as a nurse again, mm-hmm. going back to her regular life. Prior to that, she had been dressed very similarly to um, Liv Ullman's character, and I think that's a really interesting detail that kind of didn't really hit home b- before. I mean, there are other much more... Um, stark details like the the blending of their faces yeah um, and some of the reaction shots but there's all these other little cues that you notice i hate to make it seem like it is like a right answer like there's some twist that can be actually easily understood like it's the sixth sense it's some binary oh my god he was actually dead no it's (laughs) not it's not one of those those kinds of films it doesn't cop out to the to the expected formula of how we have been modernly conditioned into thinking. Of oh, look, as... another red door handle. <laughs> like, <laughs> was it? Was the top still spinning or did it wobble? <laughs> Who I gives mean, a shit? The crux. The movie was good or bad. Like that was the whole crux of it. It was like, all about it's... filmmaking, so that's all that matters. The thing is, at least it's... Bergman can at least admit it because he put <laughs> film in his actual film. Yeah. Um, yeah, wh- I do want to comment on what you're saying, Sarah, in the sense that. Um, it's funny because the more I watch it, the more I think that they are two separate people. How but, dare you? I know, but dealing with similar Son problems. But what's interesting is what you're saying. I'm about to basically kind of side with you in the sense that when you're saying how, yeah, you only see B.B. Anderson's character, which uh, I do have a question for you, but after I point something out. Mm-hmm. Um, but you only see her at the end. But not only that, but before you see her, we get this kind of almost final confrontation between the two, which mysteriously takes place back at the hospital, despite the fact that they're pretty much at, they should be at the cottage by all, like, I would say, a sense of, like, how the film had been going along so far. So I like the idea that in that scene, the two meet up one last time, because she even kind of threatens her, and, like, I'll get you to kind of come out to, you know, and break and whatnot, but only one of them emerges. So I, I, I do think that pretty much that there might be the most, at least from my eyes, like empirical evidence for that interpretation because that is kind of what the film at, at the end suggests. But the film also then also shows you a film crew uh, deliberately mm-hmm. during that final scene, which also kind of suggests like 
there is no like the movie you're watching is a movie and therefore has only been made in the same with somebody's hand and the you the viewer are, are kind of a creator as well so you can you can read your own story into it so but i am curious so if you think that they are one person i my question is do you do you have an interpretation as to which identity Who's real yeah like which <laughs> is it the sister alma or is it elizabeth fogler I guess I, I suppose it, it starts with and ends with the nurse. So I sort of take her and she's the one, she's the voice of the movie. Um, and um, I, I take her to really be the lead. And and Elizabeth Vogler is this person that she's imagining, Cre- creating. Yeah. She's She has to kind of have this conversation with what she thinks the other person would say. And it seems like another reason that I think of it that way is because we see her grappling all by herself, with herself, um, in one scene prior to the vacation, she's at home in the beginning of the movie, and she's kind of um, giving herself a little pep talk and reaffirming her life choices. And she is, we're, I guess, meant to understand she is all by herself, and then she keeps doing this later with Elizabeth on the island. So it sort of makes me think, like, if you were to try and figure out what's actually happening, if it matters, and it doesn't, (laughs) that's... I think there's maybe the most evidence for that. But then I will I will just um, come right back and say there are some scenes that I enjoyed just straight up. Like these are two people having this really intense personal conflict with each other and um, um, the tension of B.B. Anderson's character becoming really vulnerable with another person who isn't saying anything and sometimes it feels like acceptance and sometimes she feels like she's being judged. So there's a lot of interesting stuff there about what you reveal to yourself to others. So that's that's also why I'd say it doesn't really matter whether it's just one person because it this movie is equally valuable and interesting when you think about how you relate to other people and you compare your life choices to theirs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and also, do you ever, like, have a relationship with somebody else that you don't view through your own subjective perspective and don't, you know, like... it's. I don't least, know how you can, can't. Right, and, it's like, maybe I'm narcissistic, but, like, I don't think... Like, I can never have a conversation with somebody about their problems and never think about my own. Like, mm. not obviously, the, the idea of trying to be, like, a good friend and human being is to not let that show. But, like, that mm. is the human nature is to make somebody else's problem all about you, in at least internally. Mm-hmm. We understand things for what they are not, and we always try to, like, juxtapose our own... The, the the only frame of reference that we have is our own reference, which is yeah. what we do. So yeah, you guys are just extras in my movie, and it's like, fucking solipsistic. It's a, <laughs> I was gonna, it's a oh, good this movie. Is a meeting but... of solipsists united. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys uh, think of the the cinematography for this film? Because I think that gorgeous. One, the one thing that we yeah, that's a word. Perfect. Just right on, right, Top right notch. on, yeah, a one, right on the dot. <laughs> I I really enjoyed the uh, the tracking shot on the the beach, and I know how tired like talking about tracking shots can be um, in, in in recent memory. But I just Spectre. Yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm talking about. Like, but I feel like in this one, it was, like, it was actually really impressive, and it was mm-hmm. really yeah, cool. It's it was like, impressive. how the fuck did they get that to happen? But it also wasn't like like I could – like I remember when we watched it uh, last week, mm-hmm. I forgot it was in it because it doesn't – like it didn't announce itself the first time I watched it. I was like, check out this tracking shot. It mm-hmm. just did what it needed to do to convey what was happening at the time right. So as they're running across the beach. It is a great shot. Um, but yeah, all the shots, of course, of – uh, of the faces in this movie are spectacular. Uh, I mean, there's the one shot when um, 
what's Liv Ullman's character, uh, Elizabeth Vogler, is holding the cigarette. And uh, Sister Alma is going on one of her monologues, and she's leaning in. So she's covering uh, Liv, uh, Elizabeth Vogler's face, but you can still see her arm and her cigarette. And like that is just one of the weirdest, most beautiful uh, shots in cinema, even for me, more so than the iconic uh, meshing of the two faces uh, in the shadows. But that's that's probably the shot I return to most again and again. Another thing I was going to say about the cinematography and specifically the lighting, because so much is made out of all of Sven Nyqvist or Nyqvist and his um, use of natural light and just how beautifully crisp and black and white it is. And another thing, I think um, Ingmar Bergman was originally a photographer, which is I can believe he it. He has a lot of impact on how his movies look, too. It's not just his cinematographer. It was, I guess, a pretty close collaboration between um, them. But a lot of the really pivotal... Pivotal. pivotal. Jesus Christ. Pivotal, <laughs> most ambiguous scenes where you're not really sure, um, even in the context of this movie, if something is happening. They happen at night or twilight, and this is like during the height of summer. It's in Sweden. It's during the kind of the weird midnight hours and i've noticed like in those scenes there's one where um i believe bb anderson has just drunkenly revealed all these things about herself and her past and she's finally going to bed and it's like god knows what time it is but it's like the weird midnight hour and that's when elizabeth vogler is kind of floating around in the background in this long nightgown and she almost looks like a ghost there's a lot of other scenes that are at, in daylight. They're outside. They seem just like a lot more straightforward. But there's all these wonderful, dreamy nighttime sequences that are just, I think, the way they're shot, the time that they take place, that just enhances the mystery surrounding everything that's happening between these two characters. And I just love it. Yeah. yeah. Alex, so, what are you, I was going to say, what are your general thoughts? So, un- unfortunately, I'm the only person out of this panel who's only seen this film once. So. Get out of here. <laughs> my my feelings are invalid, so great. Um, <laughs> All right. So, Toussaint, what were you... <laughs> I will say that I definitely do want to see this film uh, another time. Uh, it's funny, uh, other than The Shining, the other film that I definitely would compare this to is that something that I usually go back to is comparing it to other forms of film or media that I've seen previously uh, is something like Shutter Island where you're seeing sort of a like I feel like the idea of this live action role play may be something that is happening here uh, mm-hmm. especially if we have the idea of this being one person a doctor being involved being on an island I know that's getting a little too literal but at the same time this idea of trying different things in in uh, you know psychology psychoanalysis whatever yeah, if it's a psychosomatic problem then it, sure. it calls into question like who's being treated and uh, to what extent they are being treated correct so that's that that's the film that I go back to obviously that film has a much more concrete uh, and less ambiguous uh, ending to its story than this film does um, overall though I very much enjoyed watching this movie um, it's been well documented, at least in our little circle of, of, of people, that uh, when we watch a film together after recording an episode, I usually fall asleep. <laughs> and in fact, this time I watched the entire film straight through without even you winking did. one time. So yes. that is something I'm pretty proud of. I'm proud of you. <laughs> um, I, 
I, f- I think it was maybe 35 to 40 minutes in when I audibly said out loud, Nick, are they supposed to be the same person? <laughs> and you were in, but it, it, you know, that's right around the time that you probably would catch on to. So just yeah. like in a movie like Fight Club, where there's obviously a time where you're like, oh, they're, oh, and then they are after they announce it. But this film never really gives into anything like that, where it's going to let you, the viewer, decide really what you want this film to be. And that's why it's great that it has so many perspectives. And really, there isn't a right or wrong answer, I don't think, as we were discussing a little bit earlier, even though I definitely side more with uh, what Sarah was saying, is that I do think they were the same person. And it was something that as soon as I started thinking about it, especially only seeing the film once, that I really couldn't get over that. And that's really the the way I felt about it. I do think uh, the very beginning, you know, the first however many, nine minutes or something like that, where we... Where, like the actual intro? Yes. Where I, I love that that was the intro to this film because the idea of what the fuck is going on and that really... all those images. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think that is an interesting sort of comment on what the rest of the film ends up being. Is This obviously is a quite short film as it's only an hour and a half, right? Or yeah, even shorter. Less maybe. than 90 minutes. Yes. Just less, yeah. Um, but we do have this long sort of introduction to the film and, and it is really just putting out there all of these images and different things we are we are seeing as a viewer uh, which I, I think is just a great comment on what the rest of the film is to follow and that is something to to start with as a almost like a palette cleanser to to start here with these all these images that also then build on to the following narrative. It's kind of insane that the movie opens with that, I mean, those mm-hmm. seven minutes, and the movie's still able to kind of shock you. I mean, like, after you see that, you should kind of be predisposed to, like, everything you're about to see, but due to the, I would say, careful crafting of the score and the... We, there are still things that, like, make you jump and make you go, what, what? Like, the the real burning and whatnot, so, yeah. yeah. And there are just so many moments. You guys have already hit on the cinematography and other uh, moments between the characters interacting and not really knowing um, which person is reliable and and what sort of um, you know non non um, can't think of the word right now. But so, so, uh, obviously, in this film, being a film as, as it is, and which also, one is the unreliable narrator? That that I, I guess trope, that, yeah, that, yeah. that would be that would be right. more what I'm I'm going for is that someone who's saying nothing and someone who just keeps talking. Which one is the actual yep. uh, person? And even if you do believe that they are separate people, it is an interesting sort of split of of what this film actually is. So. It's it's just a film that I definitely will be catching again. Um, I I didn't watch it for a second time, honestly, because we just got out of seeing Sausage Party, and I just really didn't want to watch any more movies. Let's talk about that film. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, Sausage Party definitely uh, kind of ruined, like, I don't think I watched another movie that night. And that that (laughs) says a lot. You just sat in a corner and just (laughs) stared and thought about life, probably. And and really, we're not going to talk about Sausage Party, but... Which we should, please. uh, But I just have to say... This film. No, 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 but I just have to say... Even, like, especially more so than Alex, I pretty much have loved everything Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg had done before. So Mm -hmm. it says a lot, really quickly, that even I hated Sausage Party. But (laughs) at the same time, that was the one night that we had discussed maybe watching Persona again. Mm. And I was like, man, I just want to have a beer and watch another episode of Vice Principals. (laughs) So if we could just do that and not get to... Because this is obviously Persona, uh, the film that I'm referring to. It's not a film that... You really can just sit down and be like, "Let's have a beer and watch Superbad." Like this is yeah. way more of a of a, of a think film, and yeah. Um, yeah, it's one I'll definitely be viewing again. And also, uh, I don't think I I 
well, maybe I could, but uh, this is the most Criterion film I think I can remember. <laughs> so it definitely belongs in the collection. It's actually Criterion-y is what you would say. <laughs> oh, pardon me. <laughs> I actually, speaking as to that point, I will say for anybody who's interested besides just in this film, uh, there is an excellent 20-minute visual essay uh, which is easily my favorite recurring uh, special feature that Criterion puts out, which is not all, but a lot of their films, they'll commission a visual essay by somebody. Uh, Ed, but somebody does a visual essay, I think a Bergman scholar, on the just on the prologue, on that seven-minute uh, sequence, and it's pretty fun to see oh, what he pulls. It's just about the beginning, huh? Yep, and oh. just how it relates to the movie itself, but he just literally just freeze-frames it and goes image by image, and it's very entertaining. So, What's that erection about? He says that, no, he, <laughs> he, he does make a good comment about how, obviously, when this movie came out, there was no there was no Perception of like home video release, so it was supposed to be obviously this subliminal thing that really people wouldn't have really caught, and if they did, they wouldn't have really believed that they saw it. So it was supposed to just <laughs> it was supposed to basically just make the audience woke. I think. Um, woke. It's, just, you know, it's Bergman being a prankster. He is. He is silly. Pretty much. Um, I want to answer a question that Toussaint proposed earlier, which okay. was, what are maybe the significance of the the images of what uh, Elizabeth Vogler watches on the TV mm-hmm. and um, and the picture that uh, Sarah referenced with, the, what was it, the little child in Warsaw? I believe that's what yeah. it's supposed yeah. to be. Um, and like what these real-life events kind of mean in the context of this movie, uh, this is in no way what I would say my uh, interpretation of why these are in there, but as far as why I appreciate them being in there, uh, it, we did an, uh, during February. We did our February favorite uh, episodes, and my as if you guys remember episode <laughs> was on the movie Magnolia. And mm-hmm. one theme I talked about of why I love that movie was the theme of empathy and how like it that movie just d- dives into characters who are very nuanced but very different, and you have to have this sense of empathy for all of them, or you don't. But the movie certainly does, and I think that's kind of what I love about this movie is I think empathy. For me, like, the reason I love Persona is, for me, I can kind of read into almost a mental illness that centers around uh, a dangerous form of empathy. And I think that that's kind of what happens with, if you take Elizabeth Vogler, as played by Liv Ullman, uh, to be a true character and not to be, like, melded with somebody else, but uh, that she suffers from a severe, uh, shall we say, diagnosis of an empath disorder, where she, because she's an actress, gets too wrapped up in the external, shall we say, conflicts of things that she sees. So obviously as an actress, she got too far involved into a role, so that's she felt whatever the emotions, I would assume, were associated with uh, the, the things she was acting in. But that's also when she sees these news stories. I think a lot of us, when we watch news stories and we see another shooting, and especially at least for three of us who live in Illinois and you know have to hear about another shooting in Chicago, we kind of just watch that. And sadly, we, we don't, I mean, I'm not saying we can't be out outraged by it but it is it's it's, it's a it's a numbing sort yes. of experience where you can you can only be hit so many times and 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 really it, it, it's, it's sad it's, but it's, it's, it's true it's really fucked up it, it, it's it's the truth and yeah. just like this is just the new normal and it shouldn't be that way no. yeah but a character like elizabeth Bogler, i think in my like what i love about this movie so my interpretation i would say is that she's suffering from a dangerous form of empathy because when she sees a simple news story she can't separate herself from it and so that's also what happens when sister alma goes to treat her 
And so and that's the sad part is that Sister Alma doesn't realize that in treating her and trying to get her to open up, all she's doing is feeding into what destroys a person like uh, Elizabeth Fogler, which is mm-hmm. to let somebody in on their vulnerabilities. And, and so when, um, so that's, that's kind of where I think that, that, that context fits in as far as the real world uh, is that it gives, it also extends to the audience because like uh, me and Sarah kind of pointed out, in most of his other films, it, it, you couldn't really latch on to any real-world counterparts uh, because they were kind of made up or they were vague. Whereas here, as Ver- I would say Bergman is doing throughout the entire film, he is kind of taunting the audience with his own manipulation. So by including real-world events and making sure that the audience knows that this is a contemporary society and that this exists, that you can't ignore these kind of problems because this isn't one of Bergman's uh, medieval existential fantasies or one of his historical, uh, you know, romps, that these are the kind of problems that somebody sitting in the theater right next to you might be dealing with, Hmm. you know, and this is as real as it gets. And uh, so that's, that's at least for me where those two kind of pivotal scenes come in and just how that relates to the idea or theme of empathy throughout the whole movie just really quickly one of them thank you man yeah i appreciate that that's what i get out of those two at least no tucson i know you had had obviously hit on it earlier uh when we talked about i don't know if you planted your flag as concretely as the other three of us had but in terms of the characters being either one person or two separate people do you have very um, clear thoughts on that, or are you still kind of wrestling over that in your head? I mean, I feel like that's just the nature of this film, that there is no... <laughs> cluing into to what Sarah before, it's like, there is no one answer. It's like, it's open to interpretation. Like, I don't want to, like... <laughs> God damn it. Oh. I was like, anyway... Oh, yes, like, everybody has to take a stance No, now. at... at as of, well, it's America. So. As of this viewing, <laughs> as of this viewing, and as of this time, um, for the interpretation of this film, it's like, I... I'm not willing to to definitively say, but I feel like I'm leaning more towards the perspective of them being sort of metaphorical aspects of one another, if not the same person. Okay. So that's yeah. reflections of one another in that way. So, I think yeah. that's right. That's the spirit it's intended in. There's these very deep um, um, contradictions in mm-hmm. all of ourselves and parts of ourselves that we ignore mm-hmm. or that cancel each other out or that we just don't express. And I, I do like the idea that this is all in one person and that there's seemingly contradictory things sometimes or something that um, we can't even accept about ourselves, much less show to others, which kind of going back to what Nick was just saying about empathy, that's kind of interesting how the flip side of that is Alma part of the reason she has such a problem with Elizabeth is she doesn't, she feels exploited by her when she opens up to her. She reads the letter that Elizabeth has apparently written to her husband about um, her problems, which it took a lot of courage for her apparently to express. And then she thinks well, that how, how, they're how just about, being used for a role. So there how about, is how about no that scene there. too? Boy, that was, I, oh, I, I remember seeing that, that being like, holy fuck, like that is like... Which scene, just so I understand? The, the, the letter and ex- oh, explaining right, 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 that, yeah. that whole process of that, yeah. how that came about. That is just like the ultimate language. Where she's even like, yeah, I, I, doesn't she write something like, I think she's even smitten with me. And kind yeah, of, yeah, that's, <laughs> like, that's like, another thing that we haven't even gotten into that's kind of what makes this movie so interesting and daring, even made in probably a much more open and different like European culture. Like there's some real homoerotic stuff in there, all the sexual stuff. I'll just um, say the, the abortion talk. It's just 
That monologue uh, for uh, uh, that Sister Alma talks about uh, for On the Beach, it's it's kind of interesting that he Ingmar Bergman made the movie Summer with Monica a f- a quite so early sixties. It's like maybe yeah, sixty two, few years before this movie, and that movie contains full female nudity, which was pretty much kind of unheard of in a mainstream like actual narrative film at the time and yet this movie doesn't actually feature nudity but feels so much more sexually progressive Mm -hmm. in even just that one scene alone when she gives that monologue which for anybody who's listening uh the original swedish cut makes reference to the fact that the boys that she uh, tells the anecdote about, I read about are <laughs> supposed to actually be underage, but they actually cut that line out of the American release. So I think that's mm. kind of she says boys in the American release, so I I don't think it's and she says quite young. And yeah. I noticed today because I didn't know that about like yeah. they're supposed to apparently be like twelve or thirteen yeah. years old in the original. So some of the details that are left in this cut kind of give some credence to that yep. little detail. But yeah, so. that that whole monologue is uh, maybe that says a lot about me. But that's one of my favorite monologues <laughs> <laughs> in all of cinema. Just because I remember watching this movie for the very first time, and there are so many classic movies that when I watch, I'll get to a scene and go, "Oh, this is that scene." Where you know, I don't know, you know, thinking of like. Uh, you know, classic lines in movies, or like Casablanca, you know, like, oh, this is that, whatever. uh, Persona was a movie I've always known was famous, whatever, but I'd always heard about the intro. I had never heard about that monologue, which after I, like, I swear I paused the movie in the middle of it after that monologue and, like, Googled it, and sure enough, a million entries come up about, like, that beach monologue. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it just completely awestruck me that I was watching a movie from 1966 uh, talk so frankly and um, somewhat disturbingly, yet somewhat, I would say, arousingly talk about just a frank depiction of uh, a sexual exploration between, especially for female characters too. That's the other thing. And that's something that Bergman's always done well is that he was pretty much, I would say always, not always, but he, I was, would you say that most of his films are for around female characters? Yeah, it is kind of surprising. This movie is very female centric. I believe there's there's just the two women on the island. There's the nurse and there's the husband and and the son. But it's um, there's a lot of problems specific to women that come up in his movies. And it's one thing I was going to bring up too is how interesting it is in the context of how these movies were made and the fact that Ingmar Bergman <laughs> was shacking up with pretty much all of his leading ladies at yeah. some point or another. He was Alfred heavily, Hitchcock. Wow. <laughs> but just more publicly. Well, I, I, well, and also that maybe they actually wanted to do that with that, him, other than Alfred Hitchcock, where they're yeah. like, ew, get the fuck away from me, freak. <laughs> Waddle someplace uh, else. <laughs> but Bergman, I can't remember if he was married or not, but he probably had the most significant relationship with Liv Ullman. And so Bay. he also, I think, yeah, absolutely, yeah. had something going with B.B. Anderson, too. So it's just so funny to think of I mean, of maybe they were the same person. Two... We don't really know. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wow. He was the kids on the there beach. Was some... It's like, honey, didn't you read the script? I mean, I'm not cheating if it's technically the same person. Yeah. Oh, What's his God. name? The guy from, uh, God, we talk about this, like, honestly, once a month. Uh, the, <laughs> was it was the guy who directed Buffalo 66. Oh, if it's oh, a Geller. Yeah. 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 What's her yeah. face? It's yeah. totally fine. It's, yep. it's, it's in the script. It's fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
it's Seriously. just I don't normally think of stuff like this and whenever people talk about like co-stars dating or like other peripheral stories about the production of the movies it's like eh but I, I do kind of like to think about what it must have been like to make this movie at that time with this guy directing two of his lovers to be in this really strange cerebral psychodrama on the island where he had made his home with this woman it's just not to mention crazy what a crazy story when you watch especially this movie between the two of them it you basically get the feeling that like almost every scene you can just basically hear ingmar bergman basically say instead of cut say and now kiss <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> yeah. like well, i was kiss. saying that today because <laughs> yeah. i'm 12 yeah <laughs> but yeah there is there is this like they're they are on the cusp of this weird psychosexual relationship i think mm-hmm. um and then you see something like Mulholland Drive and David Lynch and you're just yeah, like where, oh. they, where he basically just, just takes it yes. that, that next step He's further like, I'm fulfilling Bergman's <laughs> legacy it's I got you time. bro <laughs> I got you bro <laughs> just sort of on the topic of actresses too I should say that I think Liv Ullman too is probably one of my favorite actors who ever lived she's and this role, I think, is so incredible because she probably says 10 words in the whole movie, but she has the most expressive face. It's just conniving and mysterious and hurt and scared, and she's just incredible. I don't think I've ever seen anybody like her. In a lot of the Bergman movies, I think she's almost essentially playing the same character. She plays someone with very similar characteristics in the same, sort of the same position in life, sort of meek and betrayed but she's so interesting here and she's not even saying anything and i think it's just remarkable which I love her. says yeah. more a lot about her as an actress as she's sure. putting on this performance in, in a role that you're honestly just not going to have a lot of speaking parts in a film that has speaking parts yeah. so it's not like she's in a silent film or anything like that so yeah. she has a lot of weight to have to but to yeah she here. essentially has to act just as much as the person who sure. gets to talk the whole time and somehow and she, yeah, she's talking a lot like that must have been super meaty and awesome for bb anderson yeah. and she's wonderful too but it's uh yeah together they're they're great i want to ask about one more scene uh maybe before we wrap up which okay. is um the scene with uh carl henrik the the husband of uh, at least we'll presume Elizabeth Fogler's character as played by Liv Ullman. We, um, we see there is a kind of midnight rendezvous outside the cabin in which um, uh, Sister Alma goes out there and runs into Carl Hendrick, who comes to her and mistakes her for... Uh, now, that's the thing. Do we think that he mistakes her for his wife? As, like, now, I know you guys are saying that... like. That I think all three of you are subscribing to the idea that neither one person, but there's still some kind of weird deception going on here, even if it's an internally one. Um, now I've read on uh, just uh, sites, whether it might be Wikipedia or something, that um, Carl Hendrick is supposed to be blind, like the character, right? And I can understand, Those sunglasses. right? The sunglasses and whatnot, but then he also takes them off, and yeah. I don't know why for me, but I also feel like that is also like a weird, maybe counterpoint to the idea that maybe he's mm-hmm. not blind, but he he would rather role play because is like a a way of wish fulfillment like if your partner can't be who you want them to be then at least they can pretend to be Mm -hmm. um so i'm just curious as far as like the 
what you guys may have gotten out of that scene, uh, especially with, um, as we see, uh, Elizabeth Vogler standing behind Sister Alma and mm-hmm. basically almost like a pop, like a marionette. Yeah, like, it's like she's encouraging her to go towards him. She's yes. there sort of blessing their union yeah. later. It's a, it's a yeah, very they strange have sex scene. Too, and, yeah, that's um, implied. They've just, it cuts back to after that has occurred, but... I had the same question myself, too, today. I forgot that um, when he's finally shown Carl Henrik, he's wearing sunglasses, and then he takes them off and kind of calls back an earlier scene where uh, B.B. Anderson is wearing Liv Ullman's sunglasses and then Hmm. takes them off because she says something about how they're not her. Um, I mean, these are deliberate details, but I'm not sure why, you know, it's... (laughs) kind of keeps going back to that i'm not sure exactly why it's there i still don't think there's a literal interpretation but there's um we're meant to notice them for sure i was gonna say i mean for me at least i definitely when i watch that scene i can like the first thing i think of is the idea that he's he could literally be blind and that's why he's got the sunglasses on to, to hide that's whatever. that's why he doesn't acknowledge the second person there at right all. and that's why he is easily fooled let's say by uh the his not wife uh and and goes along with it and then i also think that that same scene also fits my interpretation which is what i love about this movie um because then the idea is that he i feel like the um he's also wanting her to embrace a a role that uh, he'll go along with because um, we get that monologue later uh, about, what is it? I think Sister almost starts where we're watching, wait, do we see Elizabeth Vogler first? It's the monologue in which Sister Alma finally lays out uh, what, what, why she decided to have the child or yes yeah. like that whole monologue we i think we see elizabeth vogler first and yep. then sister alma second yep. but that whole monologue about how she's like i figured it out you were at a party one day and she was on and on about how she was told that she couldn't be mother motherly and then she had the child and when she did well first she tried to abort it several times and then she had the child and of course all she can think about is why can't the child die and whatnot mm-hmm. so i i like the idea that He's not blind at all, and when he comes to see this new woman who is somewhat taken or encouraged by his own wife, who he might not be able to stand in some ways, uh, that he uh, kind of just takes this as like a a hall pass (laughs) (laughs) and to uh, kind of maybe start anew with it. He does say that they should be like children, so it's like he wants them to revert back to some prior Yes, because that's a callback to his letter that he wrote Elizabeth uh, Vogler in the hospital where he also describes them. He goes, you must think we're like anxious children because I'm not able to go to the hospital and yet I'm still in love with you and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So it's the same phrase being repeated uh, Mm -hmm. twice. Can't think of him not as Owen Wilson now. So thank you for that. Anytime. <laughs> yeah. Do we do we want to go to ratings or was there any more discussion anyone wanted to have first? Um, no, I think we've pretty much uh, exhausted everything that we can. Well, th- obviously, there's more to talk about with yeah. No, but I mean, film. as far as well, the conversation. Why don't me and Tucson go first? Okay. So you guys can kind of end as as you, Nick and Sarah have more probably thoughts to to end on. Um, I'll start since I've only seen this the once and I had probably the least feelings of everybody on it only because I have seen it the one time is that I give this a three and a half out of five that I really did enjoy this film and it is a movie that I want to watch multiple times again as I think there is obviously uh, something to be had for multiple viewings here. Um, I think we see this film is very interesting because not only is this a classic 
Ingmar Bergman film, but at the same time, uh, I think it's pretty much impossible to watch this film and not see all of the aspects of this particular film that have been taken from other film directors throughout time, whether it be David Lynch uh, or even somebody like M. Night Shyamalan, who clearly has taken sort of aspects of, of this kind of filmmaking into his filmmaking, um, for the most part, in, in bad ways. But still, <laughs> uh, we, yeah. we see where things come from and we see the the uh, original sort of portrayal of, of what this kind of story could be, at least for the first time I've seen anything like this in the earliest from 1966. Um, the the story, the, the way the characters play off each other and the performances, in addition to the... Um, the technical aspects of this film are just honestly phenomenal, and it is just a, a great film from uh, that era and from a, from a Swedish filmmaker, and um, it just shows that you know we have so much great film that is not made from the U.S. out there that um, would be great if more people saw because it just is able to bring so many different things to light. I feel like I'm quoting the big Lebowski right now, but <laughs> you, you bring in so many different um, cultures and uh, ways of thinking and it just can create just great film. And it, it, it was just a phenomenal movie that I, I really do want to see again sometime soon. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Since you're just like, but you're a person who hasn't seen this movie before. We obviously sat down to watch it and yeah. haven't seen another movie by him. Um, would you possibly agree with the, uh, like, would you recommend this movie, I would say, to people who maybe say they don't like art house movies? Like, do you think that this in any way is a kind of a more palatable and more propulsive movie that mm. me meanders? Probably, pro probably not. Okay, um, I was just curious. I, I do definitely think of filmmakers like David Lynch. Like, I wouldn't, or even somebody brought up who's a much different filmmaker, but someone like Terrence Malick. Like, I wouldn't necessarily recommend any of their films to anyone who is just like a, like someone like Kenny. Like, who was like a, okay. a normal film viewer who just goes to the theater, whatever. Yeah. Um, if we're just talking about straight up just foreign films that we've mentioned before on this podcast, a film like The Vanishing would be something that I would recommend to people like yeah, that more that than something like this. That being said, uh, this still is a, a fabulous film, and if, if you're willing to give it a chance, I, I do think it is something that um, will really test you both as a film viewer and also just um, thinking what you want about human person. It's only 85 minutes. That, that also yeah. that is I mean, it sounds bad, but <laughs> that it is... Really Tucson, helps. you were going to mention something? Yeah, an answering uh, that question that, yes. that Nick just posed, I think that I wouldn't necessarily recommend this... Um, you would or you wouldn't? I would not recommend okay. this film to somebody who just either... If, if it was somebody who was interested in art house film and had never seen Igmar Bergman before, I would recommend it. If it was somebody who is just a a, a neophyte, so to speak, of of art house film in general, I would not recommend this particular one. And I feel I feel like an ass to recommend something that I have not seen. But I'm just going <laughs> off I'm going off of the 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 pretense that like which one is which one is is easy easier to encapsulate into a nut graph to like sell somebody on is like are you going to talk about um persona which is like this metatextual portrait of depression and self-doubt and identity or are you going to talk about the the story of a surf who plays a game of chess both literally and metaphorically with yeah. the specter of death yeah. like he's mm -hmm. literally playing against death in order to like win his life like that that sounds like 
the, 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 ironically, that was the very first uh, foreign movie, which we're talking about, The Seventh Seal, mm-hmm. also by Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. But that was the very first Ingmar Bergman movie, and the first like criterion that I sought out where like I'd probably seen a few mainstream foreign language movies, but that was probably the first art house foreign movie right. that I ever sought out. So, no, no, you're definitely onto something there. Yeah, it's like I, w- I would definitely recommend... <laughs> I recommend myself first watching <laughs> The Seventh Seal because it's, it's something I've always known by reputation. I've always wanted to see, but I would recommend that over Persona, not um, knocking Persona's okay. attributes at all, just knowing that like what is more palatable for a first-time viewer. Um, I I love this film. I thought it, thought it was great the first time I saw it. I thought it was even better the, the second time I saw it. I initially gave it like a three out of five just because I was kind of like, you know, I like this, but like I'm not sure like how much I like this, but... After having seen it the second time, I would give it a three and a half, maybe even like pushing up to like the later echelons, like towards a four out of five, um, just because I feel like there is a lot to to delve out of this film. I think that it is just, um, it is it, it is just masterfully filmed. I think that it's well acted. I think that the the questions that are posed through that film, um, they don't necessarily have to have a a hard line. Uh, answer to them and I kind of like I like that and other people find that insufferable as in like I cannot suffer a mystery so I need to like have everything like tied up in a neat little bow in which it's not it it sort of is on one level where he's just like okay you understand it's like this understands the context of like this metatextual like film within a film sort of way but like the actual film itself of Persona is like that it, 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 you still don't know how to make heads or tails of it, and I, and I enjoy that. Yeah, so. it's really rich that way. I think that there's a little bit something for everybody there who, like, the people who want more definitive answers, they can find some concrete evidence for that, and then yeah. there's people who love ambiguity and all these different possibilities, and <laughs> it's in, yeah, so it's inexhaustible that way. So it's definitely intermediate, I would say, for the mm-hmm. entry level to Bergman and movies like that. But it's not as scary as it might seem to right. a, a newbie, I yeah. guess. Yeah, I was. If you got forced to watch this, there's certainly, I would say, enough. <laughs> like you guys, like you're just tied down <laughs> enough there to be like, like at least intrigued by. I would mm-hmm. sure think, especially or, the opening seven minutes. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, Sarah, do you want to go or do you want me to go first? Um, I actually don't have that much to say anymore. Um, I just, five stars. It's a masterpiece. Show your grandma. Show her twice. Um, <laughs> thanks joke, for having me. My grandma wanted to watch E2 Mama Tambien with me. So. Oh, grandma. Yes. How liberal is what, she? Grandma, I'm going to have to. How does she feel about two dicks in one mouth? <laughs> I'm going to have to like give you a hard pass, grandma. Why not? I don't not? know. Let me text her. Why um, can't we watch this film? No, but seriously, but that's what happens when you ask your. <laughs> that's what happens when people ask you what you want for Christmas, and then you say Criterion's, and um, so my grandma gave I've me. I've heard a lot about this movie, Cello. I don't know. <laughs> oh no, grandma! My, my grandma gave me uh, E2 Mama Damien, and she gave it to me, and I was like, "Thank you very much." Like I was excited. Yeah, sure. I wanted the movie, and whatnot. better and then, than a fucking Bible. Yeah, so. and she gave me two other Criterion's. Okay, so oh god, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she gave me two. I just really quickly need to tell the story. Sure. Now. She gave me two, three Criterion's. Total. I'm not bragging, but I, I need to show you this, the scope of like what she could have chosen. So Armageddon. <laughs> uh, I, no, I wish though. 
<laughs> uh, she gave me Itu Mama Tamien, uh, Nashville by Robert Altman, and mm. My Darling Clementine uh, by John Ford. So I, I opened these. I'm like, thank you so much. Like, that was, you didn't have to do Thoughtful. that. But, you know, all sure. the Christmas gratitude and whatnot. She goes, I really want to watch the, uh, one of those with you. I'm like, oh. And, you know, because I'm being an ageist prick, I'm like, oh, My Darling Clementine from the 40s. <laughs> and she's like, oh, no, no, that other one. And then I'm like, oh, uh, Nashville by Robert, you know. Watson. Just trying to, just trying then, to like, give it a hard pass. Come on, Grandma. she's <laughs> like, no, 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 that one right there. And then I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, well, I'm like, you know what, Grandma? Um, like, this movie uh, is controversial for the fact that it depicts unsimulated uh, sexual intercourse. She goes, I know. I'm so, <gasps> I'm so Grandma proud of you Cheney. that you were willing to actually just, like, come out and just, like, tell her about it. Yeah, I was like, I'll, I know. I was like, I'll lay it out there. But and she's well, like... She's a woman of the world. She, she apparently is. She's never been like this before. I don't know what the 80s does to you. but <laughs> So I'm like, well, um, I'm like, Grandma, I don't think it's weird that you want to watch it. but just I just don't want to watch me. it with you. Right. I'm like, exactly. why don't I let you borrow it? She's like, um, Nick, it's art. We can watch it together. No, no, no. I'm like, Grandma. <laughs> Grandma, two dicks in one mouth. I will, I will unplug your internet, and you will be fucking crying after a week if you don't shut up. So, anyway. I that, just love that too, so I was just like, Grandma, two dicks in one mouth. What the fuck? So that was my Grandma Criterion story. That is, cool. that is yep, that's a something. We, we didn't watch it together, by the way. I was going to say. What did you I, watch actually, I still haven't watched it, because I have this weird association <laughs> that my grandma is just spiritually going to be sitting there next to me. Wow, it's while they're like Swiss Army Man all over again. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I can't masturbate anymore because, you know, my mom's. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <sighs> relatable um what was i gonna say persona uh i also give it a five star uh rating uh it is a masterpiece in my eyes as well uh, ingmar bergman uh i've seen a lot of his movies as well and he's always wrestled with these existential crisis of faith crisis of uh, like tucson you said self-doubt and mm-hmm. it, it's not that he tells the same story over and over but he just finds the most engrossing and humane ways to keep peeling back layers of the same uh, ennui so to speak and um here we have a movie uh until i would say right before this movie he was making i would say great movies but he hadn't even gone that one extra step that i think he does in persona where he comments on uh themes of depression and self-doubt but now he adds this weird unmistakably ambiguous nature to it that is so hard to shake when you watch it that that's probably the best encapsulation you could ever uh, I would say depict in cinema when it comes to internal conflicts because at the end of the day if you are somebody that struggles with some kind of mental health issue is a lot of times you kind of start to even question whether what what is real and what is not I don't mean that in a hallucinatory way but like whether your negative feelings are truly like something that's internalized by your brain or just something that's a passing fleeting moment. And the way you try to uh, grapple with that can become really, uh, I would say uh, just a real struggle and can just seem at, at certain days to be just something that's out of like a movie because you just can't, it's just so weird when you're looking that straight in the face. So here we have a movie where he quite literally depicts that very notion where somebody is trying to uh, work through issues of their own while a face, whether it be their own or somebody else's, silently watches on and watches this uh, crumble in front of them. And there's just nothing more powerful than that. And I also love movies that kind of acknowledge 
the 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 impact of film and empathy in film itself. So of course, all of the uh, the bookends in this movie, whether it be the the intro or the uh, the little slight uh, burn of the film reel in the middle, where he's saying that yes, this is a movie, and yet that's what makes it powerful. Like that's what this is here for. And obviously, um, it's not just a movie; it right. is a movie. So. And he's been on record saying that he made this movie during the darkest period of his life. Like that's the reason why it exists in the way it does because he was going through some shit. And so when you know when certain people watch it, they can certainly view it as a puzzle movie. They can view it as a domestic drama, and yet there are other people who can watch it and be like, "I bet he was going through some shit because <laughs> I there's something familiar about this, and hmm. uh, and I enjoy it on all of those levels." So it's a five star film for me as well. Absolutely, we don't update it ever, but this will eventually be <sighs> in addition to the hit list. I gotta go through our uh, and figure out what's on that. Man, hit you list. got we got a lot. We don't have a lot. This is a lot. Oh yeah, I have a lot to go through. I don't know how many is going <laughs> to actually get on the hit There's list. There's at least a couple more in yeah. addition to Persona. I, yeah. Um, let, let's talk about how far back we could go. A film we reviewed, I think, about a year ago that definitely did make the hit list. That I don't know if it's actually on the hit list on our website, which is There Will Be Blood. For from Paul Thomas Anderson. Is oh, that yeah. actually is, is it on there on the website? I Probably don't know. not. No, I, I don't <laughs> think that's on there. So yeah. But yeah, that's something. Oopsie. You know what film that was is on there? Kenny was still here. It was. That was an episode. I think that was the episode Toussaint wasn't here for. It was just me, that was one of them. Yeah. 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 The one. In addition to the first episode we did. Yeah. Fucker. Uh, yeah. Sorry. No, it's okay. Yeah. We we didn't that was an accusatory. I mean, okay. come on, buddy. Yes. Anyways, uh, thank you very much to Sarah for for coming and joining us for this episode. It was it was a lot of fun to both talk about this film and just film in general with you. So thanks again for for coming on here today. Thanks, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you, it was nice to meet you. Yeah, you guys are all right. <laughs> I'm nice never never coming back. You scare the fuck out of me. But Damn. that is the exact reaction that everyone else who has been a guest on here has had. So that's you're going to edit me. this out, right? Oh no, it's going to be there, yep. <laughs> including <laughs> Sam, who's been on this, <laughs> this podcast multiple times. Yes, against her will. We're, sure. we're, we're wow. going to edit you out of the podcast. Wow. Every time we pass it to you, it's just going to be silence. You'll be the doctor that's, in this. In this it case, was I even here? That's who, off screen. Why are they referring to something that it was there a person here? Yeah, it's going to be like oh. Did, wow. Were we all one, you know? I will say with... <laughs> I knew this podcast was a collective hallucination. Something I didn't mention in our actual discussion, but I really quickly want to add in. Sure. Caveat, footnote, whatever, asterisk. Um, the, the, the idea of the doctor is interesting because of the fact that that brings the total uh, to three women in this movie. And it does remind me of Robert Altman's film, Three Women, in which I wouldn't say the exact same plot plays out or anything like that, but has a very similar plot. Uh, and what I like about it is that the idea it, it's very similar where there's a third character that's kind of non-consequential until you realize that there is a weird uh, shifting of personalities going on. Uh, anyway, just... Hardcore cinephiles and criterion collectors out there will definitely appreciate the fact that I mentioned that the doctor makes three. <laughs> so I just want to throw that out there. Thanks for nerding out, man. Anything. I love it. So on our next episode, which will be episode 78, we are, are going to delve into our third Christopher Nolan episode oh. as we, we've hit on both. We doing that? I think so. Because you never responded. I think we are, though. Okay, let's okay. do it. It's happened now. We've yeah. discussed both uh, Inception and the Dark Knight trilogy previously. And, uh, yeah, that was a great like episode. Four Christopher Nolan movies. Well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. 
Uh, and one that I think we probably will talk about next year is his film Dunkirk, which had a very interesting opening trailer. Harry Styles represent. <laughs> and if you haven't what? seen it, yeah, he's in the movie. Wow, from oh. One Direction. Yeah, it, he's in the trailer too. Oh, you don't have to the, tell me. The one who mm-hmm. turns around. Yeah, yeah. but uh, it's so a very uh, turns for, around. For, <laughs> it's all he much, had to do was turn left. That is pretty much the only it's it's scene in the the trailer. Yeah. Huh. If you haven't seen the Dunkirk, uh, and we actually probably will mention it next week, talking about Christopher Nolan, but yeah. uh, for a one minute teaser trailer, I think it's pretty much everything that that could have been, whether it be good or bad. Yeah. Um, and I'm. Clearly very interested to see Christopher Nolan doing a war film. We'll see what happens with that. I don't like war movies, and I'm souring on Christopher Nolan, (laughs) so this feels like my personal hell. But I'm also excited because I love any big-budget filmmaker making original movies. So So, so I'm excited. And it's, as I just mentioned, a major departure from pretty much everything he's done recently. So, Uh, But this film we're talking about next week is not one of the Christopher Nolan films that fanboys have jumped all over. And that is his, his first full film, which is uh, 1998's Following, which is very short, only an hour and nine minutes, and it has been on Netflix for quite a long time. Oh, but guys, isn't it black and white? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Well, that actually makes sense. Somebody forgot the color grading. That actually makes sense, because it is uh, in the Criterion Collection, so it is... I know, we've done like three Criterion Collection movies in like the past month. I'm proud of that. It's weird how that happens, because you happen to be on this podcast, and yet... You suggested Rashomon. I do not. Be- did I? You or was did. it? Was it Tucson? I'm not like a Kurosawa fanboy, so I never would have, to be honest. I the like only, Kurosawa. The but. only other Kurosawa film I would go out of my way to suggest to talk about on this podcast would be Throne of Blood. I mean, so. I'll talk about any Kurosawa another film. Uh, Criterion I just never film, would obviously. like. Be I would never choose him over another film I could choose from the Criterion Collection. Anyway, Understood. I'm excited. Anyways, following uh, an early Christopher Nolan film, pre Memento. So, uh, something we'll talk about next week. And a, a person who's joined us many times this summer is going to get one more appearance in, and that is our friend Brian. Who Brian. Will be Love that guy. Brian. Oh, I was just maybe, about to maybe do Maybe I'll that. try out Brian next week. Son yeah. of a bitch. <laughs> someday. Oh, someday. We haven't done an episode on that, have we? We. I don't feel like we can, because <laughs> I would never be able to take it seriously. And I say that as a movie, who, or as a person... <laughs> I, say I, that say, I knew it. That's why he <laughs> understands the movie, movie so well. <laughs> Jesus. I say that as a person that thinks that movie is a masterpiece, but yeah. like to talk about it, it would just be, let's quote the entire it script. Would, it would be like the Big Lebowski episode on steroids. Yeah, yeah on steroids. <laughs> yes. Because at least Big Lebowski, I was able to rein in them. That movie, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, the, and if you if you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the Matt Damon film, The Informant, which is one Have of... Have you ever seen that, Sarah? Uh-uh. It's got Paul F. Tompkins, and you haven't seen oh, it. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, it is a I'm Steven, Steven right Soderbergh now. film, uh, starring Matt Damon, and it is without right? it. It is, in my opinion, at least, at least if you've seen it multiple times, one of the most quotable films I can remember. Um, especially between me and Nick, who, yeah. for some reason, you know, not something like Fight Club or something, but we are always quoting the informant back and forth together. So, yeah. <laughs> It's so, oh boy, it, it's not good. Someday we'll have to. No, I mean it's very good, but it's it's not <laughs> it's healthy. Not good. You guys have a problem. Let's we do. It, no, <laughs> admittedly, uh, but that is not the film we'll be talking about. Who says that's okay? <laughs> okay, what? Just Jesus, the film. we don't even have to. You know, maybe I'll try Bry out. That'll be oh, fine. Man. Basically, they've everyone in America has committed a crime before breakfast, or no, been been the victim of a crime before breakfast. Well, I should say so. <laughs> 
Sick. I just love that the guy who's one of the main villains is the guy who plays Biff Tannen, too. <laughs> yeah, he's great. <laughs> so next week we're doing... Are they always fa- like this? Yeah. Only about are. the informant. I yeah. like how she's asking Tucson, are they always like this? <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Well, you know what? This is like one of the only things that I would say me and Alex like nerd out on. A lot of times it's between Aww. you and Tucson, like, uh, whether it be like Marvel or so, whatever. But yeah. Yeah, this is the one thing that I can be dragged into a tangent about. <laughs> That's nice. You get you get to share something together. I, know. I love yes. hilariously satirical films about corporate uh, corporate espionage. I, what can I say? Boom. Anyway. And Matt Damon too, as well. And yeah. uh, it's Melanie Linsky, right? Yeah, Melanie she, Linsky. Yeah, That's and great. all a bunch of other cast of characters who are just interesting choices. Tony Hale, I think, also. Oh, here. every like who's who of like comedic uh, bit actors, whether it be Tony Hale, Pat Oswalt, Paul Tompkins, appear as litigators, which I think is the guy of... from the. Oh, I always forget his name, but the guy from the Soup. Uh, what's his name? Joe, Joe McHale. McHale. Yeah, Joe McHale. Yeah, I, I think it's a hilarious background <laughs> gag that the most serious people in this film are played by some of the best uh, uh, alternative comedians uh, or I should say voices in alternative comedy in this world. It's great. Anyway. Yeah, it, it is a fantastic little film. It is. Maybe that someday. you're not talking about. Absolutely no, no, no. Not. We're, we're not doing we're an ta- episode on it. We're, we're talking about Christopher Nolan's film following. Uh, if you have any thoughts on that film or The Informant or also on <laughs> Whatever you feel like. <laughs> or The God Club. Boom. <laughs> you can send that on to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where you're going to eventually be able to find that amazing photo of me and John Cusack <laughs> uh, at Film Tank Show. And you can find all of our episodes on filmtankshow.com or on iTunes or Stitcher as well. So from our guests, Sarah Bush, also Tucson Egan, Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much, as always, for listening to this episode of Film Tank, and we'll catch up with you next time. Now, where did we get that? <laughs> what a great line! Oh, man, I love that movie. It's informant humor. It's. Oh, really? <laughs>